Greetings, my fellow Westorians. I'm Aziz. With me is Ashea, and this is Valar Reredis, special late night edition. Thus, I'm wearing a Night's Watch shirt, because most of you who are watching this live, well, it's night, so y'all are the Night's Watch. I guess we're the Night's podcasters. This is the uh, show where we look for the foreshadowing we missed, new depth in the world building, a better understanding of the plot lines, greater familiarity with the characters, and more fun than you can fit in all seven hells. And I hope it's extra fun doing it at night for some of y'all. I know that means that some of you who can't usually make this uh, our live streams can make it because of this unusual time. We like to change it up like that every once in a while. And of course, this weekend, we had gone to Nashville for a lovely event called Ball at the Wall, and it was a great success, lots of fun. So congrats to the organizers for throwing a successful event, and we had a great time. After this episode, we're going to record another Patreon special episode, Where Are They Now? It will be set on Team Stannis, and anyone who is a Patreon at any level can get access to those episodes. This will be the third Where Are They Now? episode, but we also have lots of other types of bonus episodes like The Gossos and a couple other single chapter reviews. So thanks to anyone who supports us on Patreon, you make all of our live streams and scripted episodes and all of this possible. You are our anchor, our touchstone, our base of the high tower. <laughs> and thanks to Maura Lee, who hit us with a super chat, sending love to us and the kitties and saying she always looks forward to our live streams. But it was before we even started. So she was ahead of the game. Thanks to you, Maura. Well, she was looking forward to it. Right, looking forward to. So, you know, that's the right, right, get it in advance. That makes sense. You're right, you're right. <laughs> All right, this time we have Catelyn 2. The gang fights for Rainbow Cloaks, a.k.a. the one where Brienne wins. John 3, the one where there aren't any boys, a.k.a. the gang meets Craster and Gilly. Theon 2, Theon tries to bang his sister, a.k.a. the gang starts a war. Tyrion 6, the gang hears Stannis is fighting Renly, a.k.a. the one where Shagga's a barber. Arya 6, the gang gets tickled, a.k.a. the one where Arya starts her list. Daenerys 2, the gang finally learns Robert is dead, a.k.a. the one where they explore Karth. Yeah, and this should be the last in a series of what it looks like three in a row extra long Valar Reredis episodes. The earlier chapters in the book are quite a bit longer on average than the later ones. This is most likely due to the presence and thus introductions for so many new characters and locations. Something doesn't happen nearly as much in the second half of the book. Once you get all the characters introduced, new locations, it's more about exploring and doing. Less introduction time. Six of, of the nine POVs in this book overall, looking at it from a high level, are on the move to new locations. Some of them stay on the move, like Theon and John, the entire book. Others like Arya get to Harrenhal, and Danny, who gets to Karth, wind up staying in place at that new location the entire book. And we're covering both of those today, both Arya and Dan Danny getting into those locations. They'll both stay in these new, new locations till the end. And uh, like Arya flees Harrenhal, and Danny sets sail on the ship sent by Illyrio. And they're joined by Bran, not physically, but in that he stays in Winterfell all book long, only to leave in his last chapter as well. Tyrion and Davos and Theon all end the book in dire straits. Two of them injured, the other literally in a strait. Well, okay, a bay, Blackwater Bay. Only Sansa stays put and doesn't leave, though as we'll see, a big part of her arc is plotting to leave. And only her mother, Catelyn, starts in one location, travels to several other locations, and then returns back to that first location. She goes River Run, Bitterbridge, Storm's End, and then back to River Run. 
And she's where we start today, with a perfect example of a chapter that gives us a lot of introductions without stinting on story. So here we go. Catlin 2, the gang fights for Rango. Rango. <laughs> the gang fights for... <laughs> what does that mean? Oh, that's really good. Okay. Good. Well, this is, this, is the, uh, this is what happens with the late night streams. Apparently, I say words funny. The gang fights for rainbow cloaks, a.k.a. the one where Brienne wins. It's the one where we meet not only Brienne, but a lot of lords and knights from the Stormlands and the Reach, including Marjorie. Although, a lot of them, we don't see a whole lot about them. And there's too many of them for us to cover today because this is already an extra long episode, like I said. But a where are they now is forthcoming to cover a lot of these characters. Besides so many new characters, there are also huge amounts of setup and foreshadowing in this chapter. And it's all filtered through Catelyn's internal suffering. Hmm. She thinks how she wants a day, an hour even, to just weep and be comforted. But there is no time for that. Quote. As she slept amidst the rolling grasslands, Catelyn dreamt that Bran was whole again, that Arya and Sansa held hands, that Rickon was still the babe at her breast. Well, the Bran and Rickon parts will never be, but maybe Arya and Sansa will hold hands. That could happen. A big part of this chapter, especially the beginning, is Rob's plan to head west. He realizes that time is helping Tywin more than it's helping him. And as he points out, when Kat challenges him on that, she says, well, you're just going to do what Tywin wants? He's like, no, we're going to go attack West, do what he does not expect. And indeed, he does not expect that. Never really, in all the plotting sessions we see with Tywin, that doesn't seem to be mentioned as a possible destination for Rob's army. We also hear a bit more about Kat's mother, Manissa Went, but not under great circumstances. We wonder a lot about her because there hasn't been much said about her and i suppose we probably never will a whole learn a whole lot about her since uh we're not likely to have cat povs anymore but uh, so it comes up in relation to her father's dementia he's thinks she's Manissa. she thinks uh meaning he her dad thinks uh she's her mom <laughs> that's awkward but it's also kind of in line with where hoster's been for a while he's you know thinking asking about blackfish getting married things like that he's his mind is going it's very sad. Yeah, I mean, it's it's something that a great deal of readers can relate to, unfortunately. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, I personally experienced it recently, not personally myself, but in my family experienced it fairly recently. So I definitely understand it. Uh, there's a huge list of banners and houses here, like I said. Um, some of them we'll actually be quoting throughout this, uh, this chapter of coverage. And we have uh, Renly sitting around, not doing, uh, not making war, just waiting uh, kind of like how Tywin and Rob are in a w- holding pattern, and just like Stannis. It makes sense. Uh, anyone who's played war games with your friends, a lot of times that's just how it goes. Everyone sits there and waits for someone else to commit, and then they react. Uh, Rob, in this case, is kind of the first one to make a move, but so and then Stannis finally makes a move as well, but it's not the move anyone expects. He attacks Storm's End, which surprises everyone. <laughs> and, of course... Reread allows us to consider one of the early parts of this chapter much differently, meaning the tournament. We know a lot more about what's happening. Instead of being surprised by who this blue knight is, we know what's motivating her. We know why she's so great at fighting in particular on this particular day. Even though she's pretty darn good on any given day, she was as best as she's ever been this day. And that's not clear till several books later. Quote, In the melee at Bitterbridge, she had sought out her suitors and battered them one by one, Pharaoh and Ambrose and Bushy, 
Mark Mullendore and Raymond Nayland and Will the Stork. She had ridden over Harry Sawyer and broken Robin Potter's helm, giving him a nasty scar. And when the last of them had fallen, the mother had delivered Connington to her. This time, Sir Ronnet held a sword and not a rose. Every blow she dealt him was sweeter than a kiss. So Brienne is kind of the opposite of the strategy we just described from all these top commanders. She's just going right for it and taking out all her people she's mad at one by one. She's not sitting back and waiting uh, for, which is not an uncommon strategy in a melee where it's a huge free-for-all, letting uh, a lot of people kind of expend their energy and and go down and kind of cleaning up the mess afterwards would be a viable strategy. But Brienne just wades into the melee with ferocity from start to finish. Now, what we see is only the final four. And so all this stuff that she's described, now, again, that was a quote from Feast for Crows, not from this chapter. And so we, this is all describing leading up to the point where we actually see. We see when it's down to four, and the point she just describes is before that. She doesn't describe or remember defeating the last two before facing Loras individually. And also because of the rose given to her, the bet uh, and all that, she's particularly upset to facing Loras Tyrell, quote. Loras Tyrell had been the last to face her wrath today, that day. He'd never courted her, had hardly looked at her at all, but he bore three golden roses on his shield th- that day, and Brienne hated roses. The sight of them had given her a furious strength. Yeah, I mean, dang. <laughs> he, she, he just took her down, or she just took him down, and it was epic. So there are some serious dunk and egg parallels here. Well, maybe not the egg part, but the dunk, of course. There's some, the way that uh, Brienne defeats. She uh, just dunks all over them. (laughs) The way that Brienne defeats Loras is very similar to how Duncan defeats Lucas Longinch in uh, the second Duncan egg story, which is the Sworn Sword. They fight in the water, which is a bit different than fighting in a tournament, but... Lucas is wielding a long axe, and Duncan beats him by grappling, getting him close and uh, using his superior size and strength, which uh, Loras is quicker and stronger than he would think. But in a wrestling match, it's not close. Brienne is large and strong and maybe not as quick as Loras, but, you know, overall, that's a position that most much, much favors her. Now, we like to talk about comparisons to the actors and the characters occasionally to remind ourselves the difference. This is a, uh, a good example of a small plot that had to be changed. Brienne does not look at all like Gwendolyn Christie. In the show, um, well, there's no Brienne the beauty business where they mock her appearance because that just wouldn't fly. You can't mock Gwendolyn Christie's appearance and have it be genuine. People are be like, what? What are you talking about? She's gorgeous, crazy people. So they just had to drop that. They had to drop that for a lot of characters, even though it was more of a uh, more part of her character in uh, the books. For I example, can... Jorah is also made a lot more handsome, but his you know his appearance doesn't really play a huge role in his in his character arc in the books. Yeah, that's just TV. Um, I will say Brienne is also older. Gwendolyn Christie is older than Brienne. That's in true. The books. That's, that's, that, that's that's very a true. major thing um, in terms of. When you read it and you think about it, you realize just how how young she really is. Yeah, and uh, that's I guess that's a, a fairly common thing. We see a lot of uh, a lot of the actors are older than their character in uh, not just in Game of Thrones, but just in general. That's uh, they just find younger looking people and uh, cast them for young roles. 
Kat is horrified at finding out that Brienne is, uh, well, that Brienne is Brienne, that she's a woman. She, the, the choice of words is very interesting. Horrified. I've always, that's always really stood out to me, like, because it's, to Catelyn, it's so strange and because she is so outside of normal society and Kat's kind of It's funny because her, her daughter is on that spectrum of fighting, one. That's and true. And two, you, assuming she met Lyanna Stark, she was also... And she's met other northern women like the Mormons. She's yeah. met plenty of women <laughs> that fight. But she's never seen one like like this, I think, like yeah. slugging it out, wearing heavy mail and all that. Like, uh, not that that necessarily explains it, because I don't exactly know what's why she's horrified by it. But I think it's just the shock and the, the maybe you know, a lot a, of things. Maybe a northern person doing it is different to her than an actual southern person. That's true. And to be fair about the Arya point, uh, most of Arya's like training begins at King's Landing, where Catelyn's not even present. Yeah, but but I still, mean, Arya's got that attitude and all. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I agree. Um, so there's a lot of banter between Renly. Renly's lords and Catelyn. Catelyn, I, I like the way she handles them. She points out that Rob is actually fighting where they're, they're just having tournaments. And that's a good uh, way to kind of shut them up. Even Randall Tarley, who technically has been in war before, so he's no knight of summer. Uh, but, you know, most of this company is. And that's a big, big theme here. An interesting point comes up during this banter is Mathis Rowan, who is a, a character that will feature in the Where Are They Now episode on these guys, wonders why Jamie is still alive. Wonders why they haven't killed him uh, after Ned, uh, as Ned's execution. And Mathis Rowan will later look very frustrated with Tywin's hypocrisy um, in council when he sort of has to blow with the wind like the rest of the uh, the Reach and, and sign up with either the Lannisters or Stannis once uh, Renly is killed. And he, of course... Well, he at first chooses Stannis, but then goes over to the Lannisters after Stannis' defeat. And he's not happy about being with Tywin. He did not like the murder of, uh, of the Targaryen kids. Yet, he's one of many who did not like that so much. Another person who didn't like that so much is Barristan. And, of course, he regrets not having done anything much later. It's something that haunts him. Now, Renly kind of hoped or even expected that Barristan would come to join him. And part of that is maybe silly that he would expect that, that because, well, Renly's a usurper, and why would Barristan join a usurper? But also, to be fair to Renly, he, we see early on in A Game of Thrones that they're pretty friendly with each other. They, they kind of hung out a little bit. They were laughing together early on. Uh, so it seemed like they may have had a bit of a connection, a bit of a, even maybe a friendship, uh, perhaps some respect, mutual respect. They're both Stormlanders, after all. But it wasn't enough. Barristan, Renly points out to Catelyn that he was holding that extra rainbow guard slot for him. But it went to Brienne when Barristan didn't show up. The chapter, of course, ends with the news of Stannis uh, showing up. That uh, interrupts uh, her, him giving Catelyn sort of a, a lesson, showing her how powerful he is. And, well, it's all, to me, I think this is interesting to think about the way Renly is behaving. It's very much a, a bread and circuses type situation here where he's showing the power of Highgarden with these uh, lavish feasts. There's some food porn in this particular chapter, but also he's having you know, the circuses. The equivalent of circuses are these tournaments where people are watching and they're excited and it's, it's fun for them, even though this is supposed to be war you know it's supposed to be dangerous and and serious so 
And that's kind of what Catelyn's attitude is throughout the whole chapter, kind of like she's just baffled at the attitude of these people. And uh, it's frustrating for her. Now, there's a, here's another quote that explains, uh, that kind of gets us somewhere else here in, in terms of all these uh, distractions and silliness that's happening. Quote, The height of folly was reached when a plump fool came capering out in gold-painted tin with a cloth lion's head and chased a dwarf around the tables, whacking him over the head with a bladder. Finally, King Renly demanded to know why he was beating his brother. Why, your grace? I'm the Kinslayer, the fool said. It's Kingslayer, fool of a fool, Renly said, and the hall rang with laughter. This is a quote that I'm not really sure what to make. I would love, love to hear y'all's uh, takes on it. To me, it might indicate that we have uh, Jamie versus Tyrion coming up much later, which, well, it does happen on TV. And if Tyrion's going to be hand to Daenerys and Jamie is going to be leading a lot of the Lannister armies, both those things make a lot of sense, but the things are uh, reasonable expectations from the books. And if, well, and we, what we saw on TV is Tyrion being outgeneraled by Jamie. And well, maybe that will happen in the show, in the books. I'm not super confident in that, but I don't really, uh, have a great take on what this, uh, theory on, on this quote and what it, what it portends. So we'll be looking out for y'all's takes as we move through the rest of our notes on this chapter. But, uh, yeah, that's one that gets me. Usually I have an answer, but that one, uh, yeah, really have a strong one. Um, so we're talking a lot about the size of Renly's army and how young it is and, and how unexperienced it is, not just the youth, but their greenness, nights of summer, et cetera, compared to say a lot of the Northerners or some of the other armies who have seemingly have more veterans in them. Uh, Joe wonders, Joe Buckley wonders if the Reach just didn't have much of a role in the Greyjoy rebellion. And indeed that is specifically mentioned here, quote, Few of the others were... Oh, no, that is not it. That is it. Oh, okay, good. Few of the others were very much older. They had been babes during the sack of King's Landing and no more than boys when Balon Greyjoy raised the Iron Islands in rebellion. So that's a partial explanation. Uh, a lot of them just weren't old enough to be there. A few of them were. But where were the ones who were of age and where are they now? Well, frankly, this is why Renly is such a great parallel to Damon Blackfire or vice versa, depending on how you look at it. Damon Blackfire was a king by acclaim. Uh, well, he never really was king. He was acclaimed king. He never sat the Iron Throne. And the people who followed him were mostly second sons, knights, people who were big on chivalry, people inspired by him. And that's not as many of the conservatives, not as many of the older, more experienced folks who had been through war, who kind of, kind of had more appreciation for Dare on the Goods rule and realized uh, that it's better to have a, a cautious, patient, ruler than it is to have some warrior king. Hmm, ahem, Robert. <laughs> so this is uh, a very strong connection there. And I think that's part of the explanation here is that Renly has amassed a popular following, but a lot of them are these same types, second sons, uh, knights of summer, as we say, people who aren't set to inherit. And of course, a lot of people just swept up in the excitement um, in those same regions, the Stormlands and the Reach in particular. And that's even brought up here, that particular, one of these particular examples. Catelyn asks Robar why he's here, Robar Royce. And he says, well, I'm a second son. And, you know, you got to go, the second sons have to go out and make their way in the world. And so he ends up in <laughs> Renly's Rainbow Guard, of course. Why, why not? We won't see a whole lot of the Reach the rest of the series, as far as we know, uh, though there's a good chance we start to see more of it in the latter books. So what I mean is that we don't see 
hardly any of it over the next few books. And we will see it probably um, when we get to see some action in High Garden, which George says we will eventually see. Yeah, we're going to see Willis and Garland a bit more of them. Yeah, there's still there's still the, the taking back of the Shield Islands, which we probably won't see in person, but we may hear about it and we might see some of it. And there's also the taking of Brightwater Keep. There's lots of things happening. Of course, Old Town is part of the Reach. So we have been, that's the one exception to seeing the Reach, but it's not really the Reach proper. It's just this one little, well, it's not little, but it, it's, the Reach is so large. <laughs> Old Town doesn't really represent what's happening elsewhere. So anyway, we will certainly see more of that. <clears throat> so Rob is making a lot more effort to make connections in the other kings at this time. Uh, Tywin and Tyrion are going to start doing more of that. Um, and of course, he sent Theon off. He sent Catelyn now south. He's also messaged Lysa that Lysa's not going to respond positively, but he's still, you know, trying. He's still shrewd enough to know his his sending of Cleos will not produce any results, though. So he knows that it's just kind of a delaying tactic, and he knows that uh, it's just part of this song and dance. So in part of the food porn uh, and reinforcing how powerful Highgarden is here, we have a little add-on, which is the presence of Wendell Manderley. And here's a quote. He was one of the fattest men Catelyn had ever known. But however much he loved his food, he loved his honor more. And then immediately after, we have this quote that, or immediately associated, right? I don't know if it's immediately after, but associated. It's like a paragraph after. Paragraph after. Okay, you checked. Good. I'm glad you checked. (laughs) Rob had sent 20 of his best to see her safely to Renly. He had sent five lordlings as well, whose names in high birth would add weight and honor to her mission. <laughs> so the large man who loved his honor more. There you go. Wait and honor. That's sneaky. I definitely had not caught that before. <laughs> Joe Buckley with a great take here. He said, he points out that Sir Wendell is a great example of how Renly uh, of showing that Renly's tactics are working because they show up and he's excited that they're having a tournament. Catelyn's like, what the hell are they doing? Having a tournament. This is war y'all. But Wendell's like, yeah, this is awesome. So there you go. It shows that even though Renly's strategy from our perspective might be like, this is kind of awkward. It, it doesn't mean it's not working. Um, arguably, it would have been better for him to just make a beeline straight for King's Landing and just grab it. That might have worked better. But there are some merits to this uh, plan as well, showing his power, showing that he's not in any rush, just acting uh, confident, which Renly is very good at doing. With that. And I mean, acting confident. Or maybe it's not an act. Renly is. Confident. I don't I don't think we have to call it an act. I think Renly is genuinely confident, and that is part of the draw. People like Renly. It's not hard to see why people like him. The political situation, uh, when you dig into it, it's like, yeah, you can start to see why he's he's a bad guy for for trying to usurp the throne, but at the same time, it's not hard to see why he's popular. Here's another quote where Catelyn is basically realizing the same thing. Small wonder the lords gather around him with such fervor, she thought. He is Robert come again. Renly was handsome as Robert had been handsome, long of limb and broad of shoulder, with the same coal-black hair, fine and straight, the same deep blue eyes, the same easy smile. The slender circlet around his brows seemed to suit him well. It was soft gold, a ring of roses exquisitely wrought, at the front lifted a stag's head of dark green jade adorned with golden eyes and golden antlers. That is quite fancy, isn't it? <laughs> He's a fancy man, fancy, handsome man. Yeah, he knows like to how to dress like a king. Yeah, he does. He does all the he does all the walking. He does the walks the walk and talks the talk very well. But 
Beyond that, I'm not so sure. But it's also a good reminder because uh, Renly in the show does not fit this description. Good point. Yeah, you're right. He doesn't Ren- have this powerful look to him. No, he doesn't. He also, looks pretty ordinary. And because it was the show, you see behind the curtain with him and Loras, and so you see his vulnerabilities as well, I would that, say. That's true. You don't see... you. you that's a very good point. Uh, the show also, at this point uh, in the books, almost no one would know uh, of his preference uh sexual preferences for for example that's yeah the only far more explicit one of the main show. hints we've had at this point is stannis yeah is saying and you know and even that's not really mentioned yet his like joke about in yeah. your bed he's like stay a mayor she's like to stay a maid it comes next week and the, but we do get him saying laura stay and pray with me i've quite forgotten the words that is uh in this chapter if i remember right yeah so in retrospect <laughs> so it is there are some clues but they're this is only the beginning of these clues they're not it's not made explicit till later which uh, also comes into play with obviously your damon black blackfire point <laughs> yeah very true so catlin immediately notes that that uh renley's charisma is really important and that his looks are also really important but he takes Dorne for granted. That's not something Catelyn thinks about, but it's something that, that Tyrion thinks about later, and it, and it proves accurate. Tyrion realizes that's a weakness in Renly's strategy and exploits it quite well. But it's also worth noting that Renly has won over a large section of Westeros that was previously for the Targaryens. If you, if you look at the cross-section of his following, a lot of them were for the Targaryens uh, during Robert's Rebellion, which is interesting since uh, that would you would think that the people following Robert's brother wouldn't necessarily have that alliance or that uh, allegiance, but they do. And that is of course, part of why Renly uh, takes Dorne for granted because he kind of expects them to follow along because of how much they hate the Lannisters, particularly Tywin. So it's not the worst assumption on Renly's part, but he probably should have done more to uh, make sure of it. He would not have had to offer as much as Tyrion did. Although to be fair, he didn't have anyone to marry to them. Which uh, so so the Lannisters have that edge in that they have a Marcella to <laughs> send to Dorne, whereas Renly has no children. Speaking of no children, that had to be on Marjorie and uh, her family's list, very high up on the list. Giving that marriage, uh, bringing the Tyrells into his alliance was a huge thing, and as, as we know, he was trying to marry Marjorie to Robert. Something we'll talk about a little more later. So Brienne comes up with this line that sounds a lot like something Sansa would say, although not Sansa current. Sansa already would disagree with her past self on this line, quote. What? Winter comes for all of us, Catelyn thought. Winter comes for all of us, Catelyn thought. You said it. That's it. Um, Winter comes for all of us twice, Catelyn thought. (laughs) I thought you were telling me to read the Brienne, always sunny, always sunny, always summer quote. Here's a late night stream for you. (laughs) Of course, there is also some serious, serious Lady Stoneheart foreshadowing in this one. It's a big one. Yeah, this is great. The steel was polished to such a high sheen that she could see her reflection in the breastplate gazing back at her as if from the bottom of a deep green pond. The face of a drowned woman, Catelyn thought. Can you drown in grief? Yikes. That is something. Wow. And it's, uh, so I don't even need to explain that one. I mean, drowned, you know, being in the water, the river dying, all that. And her reaction to Brienne is part of the, it fits into this whole picture of of Lady Stoneheart foreshadowing. Here's another one. Quote, 
Is there any creature on earth as unfortunate as an ugly woman? Well, yeah. You. <laughs> yeah, this is a much, much, much uglier woman is, I guess, by that logic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, mean, she becomes an, the, a very, very ugly woman. A supernaturally very, ugly. Yeah, it is very unfortunate. <laughs> Impossibly, yes. Yeah, very unfortunate. It's pretty, uh, putting but, it mildly yeah. for the Red Wedding. <laughs> <laughs> the unfortunate wedding. Yeah, it's not the Red Wedding. It's the unfortunate wedding. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, along with Brienne's sentiment that winter comes for, or Catelyn's sentiment that winter comes for us all, paired with Brienne saying that it's always summer in the songs, well, it's related to Ned because Catelyn thinks that winter has come for her already because Ned is gone. And that's just even more tragic because she has yet to face some of the worst things that are coming. Not, not to make light of losing her husband, but damn, it's, it's, so, it's not going to get better. And <clears throat> Sandor, of course has been acting so nightly towards in King's Landing towards Sansa, you know, as much as he can, given how, what a tough spot they're both in yet again, he's nothing like a knight. And so paired up here, we have Brienne who can't be a knight because of her gender, according to Westerosi rules, apparently maybe the books will also break that uh, mold like the show did. Maybe we'll see. That'd be kind of cool. I would like them to do that. Um, I don't know that we can guess that it will, but it would be nice. And knighthood is such a strong theme just throughout A Song of Ice and Fire, but really early, really much in this chapter, Bran thinks about it a lot. It's just a big deal. Uh, you know, Nina has a good question here. She wonders if the idea of Brienne and Dunk being related was something George had already come up with here. Now, remember that The Hedge Knight was written really close to A Clash of Kings. Uh, so I think that was he probably had that in mind. You know, they have the large size in common already and the the, the style of fighting, uh, the, the, the parallel fighting there. But that that's the second Hedge Knight book where this, the fighting style with the Lucas and Loras is paired up. So that might have been something he he decided on later. But and the size argument maybe isn't the best, because if you're going to have, uh, you know, this trope breaking large female fighter type, well, it makes sense to have her be large. You know, she could be a great small fighter, but you've already got that with Arya. If you want her to be uh, slugging it out with the big knight, she's got to be big too. And, you know, if he really wants to go take the, the idea even farther, he makes her even bigger. So by that, that itself doesn't indicate she's, in, she's related to Dunk and maybe other characters, but it's but, a pretty strong indication. But you also have, like, you know, her introduction being this tourney and Dunk's, you know, major plot line in the first book being yeah. this tourney along with... Uh, certain uh houses that we see yeah for all these example. reach houses um what? yeah <laughs> as well catlin spied the fox and flowers of house florent fossaway apples red and green mm-hmm. lord tarley's striding huntsman oak leaves for oakheart cranes for crane a cloud of black and orange butterflies for the mullendors across the mander the storm lords had raised their standards Renly's own bannermen sworn to House Baratheon in Storm's End. Catelyn recognized Bryce Karen's nightingales, the Penrose quills, and Lord Estermont's sea turtle, green on green. A lot of these characters, or these houses, not these characters, these houses appear in The Hedge Knight, the first, uh, the first novel. Yeah, obviously, most notably, the Fossaway red and green apples, right. in, in which case we see... Uh, them as very very major characters yeah we see the formation yeah. of the green apple fossil so i think this night. is yeah. a, a giveaway for me the idea that um they're mentioned here red and green and in, in the hedge knight um, yeah he's written it that 
whether it's Brienne before Dunk or Dunk before Brienne, I think that they were the fact that they were so close. I agree with that. The tree girl from Flick with a great catch pointing out that Brienne being in love with Renly is kind of like John the Fiddler having a crush on Dunk, but in reverse. Now, of course, Brienne's crush on Renly is a lot deeper than John the Fiddler's just lust for Dunk, but still it is a good parallel. I, I think that that was intentional by George having a little fun with these parallels. Yeah, everyone lusts for Dunk the Hunk. <laughs> dunk the Hunk, yeah. He's not Dunk along. he's Dunk the Hunk. That's yeah, right. Thick as a trunk. <laughs> Yep, he wants to try his lance out. <laughs> a couple of random thoughts and questions from y'all. Uh, Super chat from Strange TV says, "Amazing stuff. Keep it up, you too. Thanks for all the content. Well, thank you for saying so. We appreciate it." Patron Paul Barry says, "This Catlin, this Catlin chapter is my personal peak frustration with the Starks and their inflexible honor." But yeah, I agree with Paul here on this point. He 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 suggests that Catlin thinks, had you stayed and lent your support to Ned, he might still be alive. Basically blaming Renly for Ned's death. And only moments earlier, Renly had told her he'd offered exactly that. And he's, Paul says, people give the Starks points for sticking to their principles, but really it's that they can't compromise, not even slightly. I think this is a show-only line, but the Hound gets it right on the money. How many Starks they got ahead before you figured out? I think it's a fair point. You know, there's, there's, there are good reasons to stick to your principles, of course, but also, you know, you can't just stick to them. Like, you can't just be like Stannis and break before you bend you have to be willing to compromise sometimes uh for not just for expediency's sake but to save lives sometimes principles aren't worth more than lives usually sometimes they are i suppose that's a matter of debate but in any case the point is that she's kind of being a hypocrite with what she guessed ned would do versus what she expected from renley i think it's a fair point there's also some reverse foreshadowing here uh, a very familiar tactic from george r martin quote King Renly smiled. If I'm not safe in the heart of Lord Caswell's castle with my own host around me, one sword will make no matter. Not even your sword, Brienne. Sit and eat. If I have need of you, I'll send for you. Yeah, I mean, she was powerless to stop a shadow baby. Her sword never left its scabbard. I mean, there was nothing to swing it at, uh, and she couldn't have reacted quick enough anyway. And just the same, he was surrounded by his huge host. Didn't matter. Archmaster Rennie from Flick points out a nice quote that that Renly was, she sees Renly as a ghost in a golden crown, which she thinks of it that way. It's very clever. It's a double meaning because she thinks of how much he looks like Robert. And that's why she's thinking of him as a ghost. But it also serves as foreshadowing for the fact that he's about to die, uh, not in the next Catelyn chapter, but in Catelyn 4. Trigal also points out that it's not just the food and, the, and all the power and Renly's confidence, but like we pointed out, Ashea noted that he knows how to look like a king. His wealth is really adding to the impact of his charisma. It's kind of like uh, what Tywin likes to do. Tywin shows off the wealth and power of Cashley Rock. Well, Highgarden, not quite as rich as Cashley Rock, but they can really make noise with their wealth too. Stefan B. had a great catch here. This is another one from Flick. Flick uh, really came in strong with the commentary on Catelyn too here. He points out the archer sits there complaining. There's just a random archer who complains about Brienne's dirty trick against Loras. But hey, Loras used a trick on Gregor in the tournament uh, for Ned's uh, becoming hand. So hmm, very good, very good catch there. So Loras can't complain himself there. He would be a hypocrite. And he doesn't, to be fair. In Arya 7, which is uh, eight chapters from now, 
she hears that disgusting anecdote from Chiswick, which occurs right after Loris's trick. And the mountain was an extra bad one. So here's another little quote that uh, gives, gives us another example of George referring to fighting like dancing. Quote. The white horse and the black one wield like, wield like lovers at a harvest dance, the riders throwing steel in place of kisses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's more dancing. Now Tyrion has Shaga, John has Ed, Theon is sort of his own comic relief. <laughs> Danny's going to get strong bellwets at the end of this book. And Cat has good old Captain Obvious, one of our favorite supporting characters, quote. Attorney, Hal Mullen declared. He had a penchant for loudly announcing the obvious. <laughs> and we'll get more Captain Obvious lines in the next two couple of Catlin chapters before they finally part company later at River Run when he sends her, or when she sends him, rather, to, with Ned's bones back to Winterfell. George R. R. Martin doesn't get into too much detail with Bitterbridge itself, even though this is the location, something he normally does. But that's uh, that's fair play here. There's so many other introductions to give. And frankly, the castle is underwhelming. There's not much to say about it, but we will say something about it anyway. <laughs> it's at a very strategic location. That's, it's much more important than the castle itself is its location. It's where the Mander meets the Rose Road. The Mander is an extremely important river, and the Rose Road is an extremely important route. So it's sort of like the end of the crossroads of uh, the reach, um, in a sense. It's the closest parallel we have. So kind of a crossroads where there should be lots of traffic, should be boats, lots of foot traffic, lots of wagons, lots of trade, things like that. It used to be called Stonebridge. It was renamed after the Battle at Stonebridge, where a fearsome warrior named Watt the Hewer, who was a huge man wielding an axe, led 9,000 poor fellows. Remember, those are the... Uh, commoners who joined the uh, the faith as warriors before they were banned by Magor the Cruel, who is the man they were arrayed against in battle. Uh, they, the battle actually occurred when they were trying to cross, and it went very badly for the poor fellows. They were surrounded and divided and slaughtered. It was so bad that the river was said to run red, and thus the name Bitterbridge was born. In what, uh, in what is one of many Magor the Cruel to Gregor the Clegane parallels, Watt the Hewer was captured alive, uh, dismembered, but left alive. That should remind us of what the mountain did to Vargo Hote, cutting off his arms and legs and uh, carrying him around, making him watch things. And hey, Arya 6 is only four chapters away, and it's the first extended stream time for the Gregor Clegane himself. Well, apart from the tourney, he's mostly just talked about a lot. So we, we have seen him, but this is where we actually have extended screen time from him. And it's all coming together so well, just like the Mander and the Rose Road at Bridgebridge. Ah. One last tidbit from this chapter that there is uh, a little quote here that I'll have Ashea read for y'all. Lord Willem's sons, Joshua and Elias, disputed heatedly about who would be first over the walls of King's Landing. So this is just a, it seems like just a casual comment about the Knights of Summer, uh, you know, talking about who's going to do what and what glory awaits them all and things like that. There's several moments like this that Catelyn notices, but this one is a nod to Austin Ard, uh, meaning the Tad Williams novels, a.k.a. The Dragonbone Chair, Memory, Sorrow, and Thorn. Uh, a, a dispute between Joshua and, Eli- and Elias is the key to the main series in that uh, in those books. And the author, Tad Williams, is probably why this is Lord Willem's sons. So there are many references to Tad Williams and the Austin Ard series, but I think this is the first one we've run into. 
but that, like I said, there will be more. Okay, John 3, the one where there aren't any boys, a.k.a. the gang meets Craster and Gilly. It's also John's longest chapter of the book by far, as it involves, well, the same thing we said at the beginning of this episode. Very important setup, but in particular, in this case, for John's arc, it's the others and the wildlings and things long forgotten. It starts like this, quote, A blowing rain lashed at John's face as he spurred his horse across the swollen stream. The bleak start of this chapter only gets worse as bad weather really pales in comparison to, you know, child sacrifice and forced incest and all that. And in rereading this chapter, there are a lot of seeming contradictions. And I don't mean like mistakes by George R. Martin. I mean things like Craxter acting devout with regard to the others and in things like guest right. But also incest and kinsling are abominations to Northern cultures from what we're told. And he seems to have embraced those, let alone seeing them as wrong. So it's very interesting. And more than that, with later tales from White Harbor and Davos's A Dance with Dragons chapters, and from some of the history books, The World of Ice and Fire in particular, but also Fire and Blood, things make this Craster scene look quite a bit differently. Uh, it just, instead of Craster, well, he's not rehabilitated by these revelations by any means, but he seems like less of an exception. Sorta. Maybe. Right? He, he seems like more of a relic. A representative of faded beliefs made more certain by recent events, though, right? Because the others are coming back, seemingly. So maybe he's becoming more right in his mind. In, his, in this chapter, his beliefs are loudly stated. And given his age, because he's not a young man, and how long he's lived in this area, it's hard to argue with him. Now, again, not that I think he's justified in giving up his babies. No, of course not. But as G.R. Mormont tells John, but the wildlings serve crueler gods than you or I. So when I say it's hard to argue with him, I mean that literally he's not going to listen. He's very confident in his beliefs. He's not going to hear other people's interpretations. He doesn't care. He's, he's doing his thing. He's an old man. He's not changing his ways. The alternative is brought up. Mormont says, John, you think I should kill him? But killing a man who would save so many rangers from death to exposure is a major complication. You can't easily just do that, right? It's, it's tough. And of course, so many of the rangers have accepted this. So all that is about the others, uh, meaning Crasher's attitude. I'm not referring to the incest when I talk, talk about his attitudes. That's just not normal. They, we don't see that elsewhere in the North or in, um, with the wildlings, not much anyway. And it serves as a device to make Crasher seem even more abnormal and abhorrent. But I think that's partly masking some of the other abhorrent things he does, which are kind of normal-ish, meaning the human sacrifice. Human sacrifice in the North is something that happened for thousands of years and perhaps only ended mere centuries ago. It doesn't make the sacrifices less chilling or wrong. It just, like I said, makes Craster seem less different by comparison. But this is where one of these, may, not a contradiction, but where there's a, a bit of a difference that's meaningful and significant, though it's still human sacrifice. And the difference I mean is, well, Craster gives his sons to the cold. Uh, whereas this the style of human sacrifice we seem to hear about that's gone on for so long in the North is, is sacrifice to the werewoods. And it's blood sacrifice from what we hear of like entrails being hung. And we see Bran's vision of the, the captive having his throat slit. That's different than what Craster is doing. Another difference we see is that Craster gives sheep to the others when he has no sons. And that's, it's peculiar. We don't have a lot else to go on here as far as examples. We do see sheep's bones at White Tree. And again, Raster's mother came from there. 
But this is still a very compelling but unrevealed mystery. We don't know if Craster learned that from her. And if he did, well, why does he do it differently? Did Craster's mother, well, she didn't leave him out to the, to the others. So uh, we're not quite sure where he got started with this idea. So this is where we need to consider the show and that it's quite possible the baby becomes an other via the Night King's touch scene is misleading. Be clear, I'm not against the idea that these babies become others. I just think we shouldn't assume it because, well, on okay, one hand... I want to quote you on that. You are pro-babies <laughs> being turned into others. <laughs> um, there's pro-life, pro-choice, and pro-other babies. Yeah, pro-undead. Oh, pro-undeath? I don't know. To be clear, I'm not against the idea that these babies can become others. I just, you know, of course, the others don't breed. So they probably have some way to make more of them. <laughs> and maybe this is it. But the sheep part is a little confounding because, well, how is a sheep a substitute for a child if the point of the children is to turn them into others? Are we going to see, you know, blue eyed other sheep <laughs> as part of their army later? I just don't think so. <laughs> so why are they accepting a sheep instead of a child, given they can't be used for the same purposes? It's like, all right, we'll take that sheep for now. But we need some babies eventually. And, and Gilly points out that they'll, he, that Crasher is eventually going to start giving dogs now that he's out of sheep. So I'm conf- it's a little confusing. We just don't have similar examples for that. We don't we have human sacrifice in the past uh, as to the werewoods, but and we see the sheep sacrificed maybe in some other in, in at a white tree along with bones that are not sheep. So yeah, these things do add up, but they don't add up to a conclusion. Or rather, they do connect, but they don't connect in any way that we can be sure. So this is all stuff we're going to have to keep in mind for when we get more information about the others much, much later. Because as we know, even with three books more coming after Clash of Kings, we still don't get that much more on them. We don't even see them that much more. But we do get a little. But, but Gilly says, uh, Gilly is, is, is a big part of our window here, because Craster is not forthcoming. In fact, he lies. But Gilly, he, she tells us some truth. Here's, some, here's a quote. He gives the boys to the gods. Come the white cold, he does. And of late, it comes more often. That's why he started giving them sheep, even though he has a taste for mutton. Only now, the sheep's gone too. Next, it will be the dogs, Till. She lowered her eyes and stroked her belly. So Till, her child, which she worries will be a boy, and indeed, well, we see later, it is. So she was right to worry. I mean, well, of course she was right to worry, but now... Despite the watch tolerating Craster because of the life-death nature of ranging beyond the wall, John makes it clear from a moral point of view that this is wrong. He wants to be part of it. John, again, is like uh, our moral compass uh, on a lot of issues. And that's, that's partly because he's raised by Ned Stark. He's a bit surprised to learn Benjamin accepted it, though. That kind of strikes him as difficult to consider. But if we're being blunt about circumstances, if John were in danger of freezing to death, he might change his tune and say, okay, well, I'm not going to hold to my principles so tightly that I die. Uh, Living to uphold your principles throughout the rest of your life seems like a better plan. But John isn't faced with that decision. And he also just won't help Gilly. He won't break his vows. He's, again, he's like Ned in this. He's very duty-bound, even though he has compassion. Duty seems to come first most of the time. And while Sam begins to teach him why there's more to this than vows, that wildlings are people too, that lesson's not going to fully sink in with John until not that much long later when he meets a grit and forms a relationship with her. So John and Sam, 
are the main two that form relationships with wildlings. And that leads to helping bring them in alignment with the rest of humanity so they can fight against this evil that Craster and by extension, his wives have been forced into. So there are, we see there are other ways of dealing with this rather than Craster's way. (laughs) John's also a lot like Arya here. Uh, We have a POV amidst horrors that seemingly everyone just accepts. Arya can't believe the Hound got away with killing Micah and was so mad that her father just went along with it. He, she did not see him step up like she expected he was going to. He just had to blow with the wind like so many others. He, he hated doing it, but he didn't really have a whole lot of choice. So they're both getting lessons in what the w- real world is like versus what they've been told it's like. This is the start of John's vows slipping and his sense of duty evolving to include people he's been told to exclude. It's like, well, yeah, you've got to form your own rules for this. You've got to go with your heart sometimes. And this duty thing isn't all it's cracked up to be, even though there's a lot of honor in serving. Well, these things conflict. It also It's, it's the same kind of thing that Jamie explains to Brienne later. And it's a great point that swearing vows can conflict. And uh, like Eamon says, love and, and duty do not match up so well. They don't go together well. So it's easy to see the world in black and white when no one tells you about the gray. And that's what a lot of John's upbringing was. His upbringing was not very gray. And that color symbolism exists here too. The Night's Watch are all in black and they're arrayed against this endless white. But uh, so in that sense, the good guys and the bad guys are pretty clear. But when you get into the human element, it's not as clear. And that's when you get into things like guest right, which doesn't really relate to the concept of the others so much, but it's still huge in this chapter. And this is the first time it's particularly well explained. Before it's alluded to, uh, Nina reminds us that Rob greeting Tyrion with the blade on his lap is, you know, a sign of guess right. It's kind of a, as we can intuit without explanation what's going on there. And Tyrion makes it clear too. But this, in this chapter, we start to get the finer points of how guess right works. At least some of them, not all of them. And that, of course, is groundwork for the Red Wedding and other things. Gilly is a huge part of this. She shows herself to be very observant when John says, oh, I can't violate guest right. But Gilly says, ah, technically, you didn't accept guest right. And she's correct. So she's technically correct, which, say it with me, everybody, the best kind of correct. Yes. Thank you, Futurama, for that enduring lesson. One of the quotes we use most often. (laughs) Though GR teaches John a lot, and he's overall a decent guy. Uh, there, there's some fair criticisms of him to level on a number of areas. He's not as thoughtful as John as a leader, uh, and he doesn't have either of their moral centering uh, as a, you know, and he's also not a POV, so we don't know what he's thinking. So that maybe to be fair, uh, there would be more nuance to his, his decisions. But he says this, quote, The wide world is full of people wanting help, John. Would that some could find the courage to help themselves. Craster sprawls in his loft even now, stinking of wine and lost sense. On his board below lies a sharp new axe. Were it me, I'd name it Answered Prayer and make an end. Joe Buckley call, says this is a nomination for the, one of the most disappointing lines in the whole book. Yeah, he, he says a reread of Game of Thrones has already changed his view of Gior, but he's knocked himself down another level here. This is not really a thoughtful line of thinking from Gior. I have to agree with Joe on that. If, if Okay, so imagine that they do that. Imagine that they do kill Craster. 
so many issues with that. For one thing, he is their source of food and sort of protection in a sense. But where are they going to go after that? Are they just going to stay there? I mean, that's not going to go well for them. And what about the fact that most of them, if not nearly all of them, are technically his daughters, meaning that only a few of them could do that without it being kinslaying. So, yeah. This I is mean, just... considering that how old he is, I don't know. I think they all have to be related to him. Maybe not the, maybe like one or two of the oldest ones aren't, yeah, but you're right. I guess, like, I guess maybe he could have, it just seems like how would like, is he capturing another woman and he couldn't know in soul of what trading like you yeah. have one of these women and i'm going to take one of yours yeah you wonder where they originally came from they're not it's not really explored i mean gilly is, is was his definitely his daughter so she came from there but yeah we don't really get an explanation and this this whole this this moment is done with a flair for symbolism too it's literally mormont's axe <laughs> that he's saying they should use <laughs> he's like you could i gave them my axe they can do it <laughs> you know he's willing to give the axe he's willing to see it used to kill craster he fully acknowledges that traster is terrible but he won't do it himself everything but the responsibility uh so joe makes another observation here uh quote the cold gods, she said, the ones in the night, the white shadows. Yeah, he he th- he says, I don't think they're ever called this again. I checked, they're not. No one ever, el- no one else ever calls them the cold gods. So, but it's it's meant to be very distinct. It's showing us that these are the gods that when Mormon says the wildlings serve crueler gods than us, well, it's kind of hinted at this is what he's talking about, even though he doesn't fully understand what he's saying. He doesn't fully understand the meaning of these sacrifices and who they're being given to because really still at this point Gior no he's aware that something's up he sees the he saw the walking dead but he's still mostly focused on the wildlings with this mission is he caught up on the walking dead (laughs) that's a lot of seasons to watch and all those spinoffs and everything yeah he really should watch that his night's watch should all train by watching the walking dead (laughs) should be required learning required watching for all of them so we wonder, because Craster definitely uh, tells, seems to tell the truth about Mance. Well, he definitely tells the truth about Mance. We see that later. But what about Benjen? He says he never saw Benjen. Is that true? Craster admits that Waymar was there. And since Benjen was going to follow Waymar, then wouldn't Benjen have shown up there? Maybe not, because maybe he didn't make it that far. Then again, the, a theory that Benjen is the one who left behind the cache of weapons, the dragonglass weapons that John finds not long from now. Well, that's north of Craster's Keep. So if Benjen left that, then he would have had to pass Craster's Keep. So it's hard to see why Craster would lie about this, but it can't be ruled out. It's definitely possible. One of the things he does lie about is that he says he's never seen the others. The, The reason this is probably a lie is that, well, maybe... Maybe he only leaves his sacrifices but never sees them physically, but that's a semantic dodge if it's not a lie. But I do think it's a lie because Gilly says the following. What color are their eyes, he asked her. Blue, as bright as blue stars and as cold. She has seen them, he thought. Craster lied. 
So John agrees that Craster was lying. So do I. I Real think, quick. Yeah. I just have to point out everyone on screen can tell that everyone who's watching can see the lighting on Aziz change right then, right before I had to read that quote. <laughs> we have a Phillips Hue and it's set to turn to rainbow at 1230. So um, that's just a funny little thing. It should have turned rainbow. We were talking about the rainbow guard. Yeah. It's a little late. Oh, well. <laughs> Uh, quote, uh, a comment from Flick Leaf, a.k.a. Mother of Tribble, says, someone on YouTube, uh, I would credit them if I knew she couldn't remember, uh, suggests that maybe Craster lied about knowing where Waymar was going and, in fact, informed the others about him, which is interesting because whether or not that's true, it touches on a long-debated theory. And I'm, when I say long, I mean since this book dropped. So people have been wondering since 1998 or so, how does Craster communicate with the others? What's the mechanism? Some again, he didn't learn leaving boys out in the cold from his mother, probably because he wasn't left out in the cold. Again, I'll repeat myself by saying that to be clear. Uh, did he learn it from someone else, or did does he actually talk to them somehow? And another issue with him learning it from his mother or from anyone else is the recency of the other's return. Gilly says the cold gods have been coming more and more often, so it's not necessarily true that anyone else was part of bringing the others back or if they came back on their own. So we have a lot of things to balance here. Did Craster help the others return or is he helping them regain their strength after the, you know, as part of their return or is it something else entirely? So there's differences in these forms of sacrifice. And I think that's really key. And it shows us that something has changed and that something that's changed might be the return of the others. And someone like Craster is adapting to that, this horrible reality. But Still, it leaves that question that Mother Tribbles raises here. How is he talking to them? How is he dealing with them? Where did this arrangement come from? I don't have an answer. But Dywin says a few things that relate to this. And you can see how these things said about him are kind of telephone game versions of the truth. This is a, a great catch by Stefan B., also from Flick, who Flick is really killing it for this chapter. Uh, I already said that. I'm saying it again. Here's a quote. Dywin said Craster was a kinslayer, liar, raper, and craven, and hinted that he trafficked with slavers and demons. And worse, the old forester would add, clacking his wooden teeth. There's a cold smell to that one, there is. Listen to Dywin. Uh, Dywin's going to talk about the cold smell uh, once they're at the fist of the first men, too. And people are going to argue with him that you can't smell the cold. And John's like, no, Diamond's right. You can smell the cold. I smelled it when I fought the, those whites. But what's this about slavers and, and giving, you know, is that, is that just a, a hint with giving up his kids? Is that where, what, what, what the rumor turned into? Giving up his kids is like he, they've, people thought he was selling them to slavers rather than giving them to the others. May have, but the demons part might be trafficking with the others. That may be where that comment comes from. The raper part, well, you can see that he's, taking his wives this way the the liar part we already saw the kinslayer part giving up your kids is kinslaying craven um he might not be a craven i i haven't seen him do be a craven but i mean arguably i mean his lifestyle is craven yeah if he's giving up children yeah to the others that's a fair point yeah he doesn't act cowardly openly but most his actions do his actions indicate it i'm sorry most people would be a craven yeah, they may not sacrifice their kids, but they wouldn't be able to stand up to the others. And that's a fair point. Like how, you know, maybe there's other options like running south, which he's too proud to do that. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's fair to say he doesn't exactly have a lot of options. 
on the other hand, if we're talking about trusting Dywin, you know, we, we, we always say these things can't be taken too far. I mean, old Nan, I think spoke, speaks mostly truth, but not every single word that comes from her mouth is, is accurate. I think like, for example, here, Dywin, though, I think he's, he's right. He also says he slept with three of Craster's wives in this chapter. And that's almost certainly not true. Uh, there's other elements that point to Craster's bargain with the others without explicitly explaining it. For example, Nina points to his extremely weak defenses that John takes note of. He's like, yeah, he doesn't really seem to have bothered with much in the way of defenses here. He's confident in his bargain, I suppose. Uh, Gilly remarks that the king is supposed to keep the people safe. Even above the wall, we can't escape, escape that that's a big theme of this book. Uh, people fighting over who has the right to be king. And they do this in a variety of ways with force and with uh, from proclaiming themselves the most capable of handling things like keeping people safe and dealing out justice, which there is very little of North of the Wall. Uh, this chapter ends with John thinking on the futility of this mission. Uh, GR wants to know what's happening. And I think he's not wrong to emphasize the value of intelligence to showing, uh, to, to needing to know what's going on beyond the wall. I don't agree with people who say that he should have just sat back and defended the wall. I think that that wouldn't have worked. And I know why, and we know it wouldn't have worked because the Magnar of Then's mission to climb the wall and attack Castle Black on the south side only failed because of John's warning. And if there hadn't been rangers out exploring, they would not have seen that coming. So Castle Black would have been caught unawares because they didn't have the ability to see Mance Raider coming and they didn't have the ability to defend 300 miles of wall. And there's only, as we see, yeah, it's a tiny group of rangers. There's 300 of them. What, one ranger per mile of wall? <laughs> I mean, it would be very easy for Mance to find a place along the wall that the, wild, that the watch can't keep an eye on and send men over it. That's exactly what the Magnar Fens mission was. So I think that, yeah, it's fair to say that this mission is, is really risky and dangerous, and, and there's things he could have done differently, but not going north has a lot of perils too. Maybe he should have just continued to send out ranging parties, just larger ones, rather than just sending everyone out at once. But I, I just want to point out that none of Gior's options here were good. An aspect of all this that Gior is misled by, too, and understandably so, is the timing of everything. Again, I want to point you to the fact that he's mostly focused on Mance Raider and the wildlings and is just kind of the others and the walking dead are in the back of his head because he's not sure what's going on with that. He doesn't have much information. <clears throat> and of course, they're also looking for Benjamin. That's another big part of this mission. He doesn't consider the timing of all these rangers like Garrett running off. We do. We, we, you know, Garrett is mentioned in this chapter by Craster, so we can have a chance as readers to make this connection, but it's still pretty subtle. Point being, the weak, uh, he, he does consider not only how weak the watch is, but how weak the North is because he's aware, meaning Gior is aware that Rob has taken so much of the North's strength South to fight the War of the Five Kings. So he says Mance couldn't hope for better timing in planning an invasion, but he hasn't considered that the things he sees with Garrod's example and the other rangers that ran off is that those are connected. Mance is massing an army for the same reason Garrod ran away meaning uh, the same reason Craster is sacrificing his sons. Not that Craster intends to flee south of the wall, but Mance's true purpose is to do that. He's not planning an invasion per se. He, that's a last resort. 
He wants to escape the others and lead his people away from the others. If he has to conquer South to do that, so be it, because they're dead if they don't. Maybe a a doomed uh, campaign attacking South, but it's definitely a doomed campaign to stay North. So like Gior, they're caught between the winter and the wall. And these realizations are what lead Stannis and Jon to both accept the concept of an alliance with the wildlings versus the dead. They realize what Mance already realized, that this is their only choice. Gior never gets a chance to piece all that together. He's going to die before that all becomes clear. However, his offer to Craster to raise his kids with the watch is sort of a precursor to Jon and Stannis bringing the entire wildling population over the wall. All right, some questions and miscellaneous thoughts. Newt Rock 44 says, so you feel the others are just using Craster and wouldn't roll over on him? I mean, I understand the line of thinking, but does that not suggest they don't want to kill all the warm-blooded life? Uh, I think that it's kind of like uh, they're using him while they can, and they will eventually roll him over after they're done using him. I think he's just a tool that is helping them, but once they don't need him anymore, they won't give a crap about him. There's a there's some similar examples. Uh, Nina brings up a great point comparing him to Sour Billy Tipton in Fever Dream. If you've read Fever Dream, well, you may get this point. If not, I highly recommend checking out our Facebook group and her thoughts on this. Can't get too deep into it because a lot of you haven't read Fever Dream. But the point is, Sour Billy Tipton is a human uh, and the book is about vampires or it's a vampire story set on the Mississippi River. And so a common theme with vampire stories is that they use humans to do the things that they can't do, like do things during the day, bring them fresh blood, bring them kills, things like that. So that's the parallel that uh, Nina dives into. And I think it's pretty good. It's pretty strong, solid parallel uh, comparing the others who seem to maybe need help. Uh, They can't and they can't operate during the day. There's some strong parallels there. So maybe Craster is uh, a bit like uh, that classic vampire uh human trope the, the, like a, a renfield <laughs> or uh like a, like nina says sour billy tipped uh here's a uh a funny quote sort of <laughs> be careful around craster's women as if samuel tarley needed warning on that score <laughs> well he, maybe <laughs> yeah he's the only one out of the whole group that that scored <laughs> that actually on scored that score yeah, yeah. <laughs> very nice <laughs> diwin's probably lying but sam does indeed eventually score Interesting, too, that Craster notes that John looks like a Stark. Like, he's like, you look like a Stark. That's very distinct. That Starks have a look that even someone like Craster can recognize. I think that's pretty neat. Here's another telling quote line here. The Night's Watch has other wars to fight. <laughs> John thinks other wars in his mind. So, yeah, other wars. They're, yes, they have to go to war against the others. Yes, yes. There are some fun history tidbits in this one, starting here. Raymond Redbeard led them south in the time of my grandfather's grandfather, and before him there was a king named Bale the Bard. Aye, and long before them came the Horned Lord and the brother kings Gendel and Gorn, and in ancient days Joramun, who blew the horn of winter and woke giants from the earth. Each man of them broke his strength on the wall, or was broken by the power of Winterfell on the far side. It is not foreshadowing, though. This time, the power of the wildlings was certainly slowed by the wall, but broken by a king from the south. Stannis, right? Broken and absorbed, meaning he took the wildlings into his army after defeating them. That is also unprecedented. 
And this mention of Bale the Bard looms very large, but it's interesting though, because John, John mentions it, but he doesn't know much about it. It's only a few chapters later that Igrit tells him this full story and it's completely new to him. So it sounds like John only knew that Bale the Bard was a king beyond the wall. He didn't know the part about him being a Stark ancestor. Now that's another reason it looms large is that Mance is, is going to later pretend to be able a-B-E-L, which is an anagram for Bale, B-A-E-L, and he does a lot of the same things Bale does, pretending to be a musician, trying to kidnap a, a Stark daughter. Uh, of course, he kidnapped, tries to kidnap fake Arya instead of real Arya, but it's still, the, the, uh, the parallel is still pretty straightforward, even despite that. Um, Abram wonders about the mentions of ghost-eating children, like uh, Gilly seems afraid of that, and it could be a reflection of the old gods because ghost looks like uh, a werewood and thus it maybe reminds us of the sacrifice of children that's present in this chapter now obviously i don't think ghost is ever going to eat a child but uh sacrificing to the werewoods is a big theme and ghost looks like them so you can kind of see the maybe why there's being a, a nod there we know chet already he uh he's the one who plots to murder his fellows and run off we get the introduction to Lark the Sisterman here in this chapter, uh, along with Ghost, um, or rather interacting with Ghost, not along with Ghost. Of course, Ghost isn't being introduced here. We've known him for a while. There's also talk of John's bastardy in this chapter. It's very sneaky and it's very telling, quote. A bastard, is it? Craster looked John up and down. Man wants to bet a woman. Seems like he ought to take her to wife. That's what I do. That is what he does, but... <laughs> That's the ethical thing to do, it seems. <laughs> so this is really neat because it's, it could be an indirect reference to John's real parentage, which involves his grandparents and farther back ancestors being very ancestors. Obviously, I mean, on the Targaryen ancestors. Side. That's perfect pun. Ancestors. Yeah. yeah, you did not plan that, but ancestors. <laughs> That's what all the Targaryens are, ancestors. How did we not come up with that term before? I know. That's a good one. <laughs> More importantly, it's quite possibly a reference to the notion that Rhaegar and Lyanna were actually married, hmm, which meaning John's bastard status might be in doubt. He may not, he may turn out to not be a bastard in the long run. Recall too, that Craster sees bastard as a huge insult. When he's killed later, that's the that's the word that really sets him off. And and Sam points out that Craster is probably a bastard because his father was a Night's Watchman and his mother came from White Tree. So it's interesting that he's so insulted by something that he probably is. And, you know, to people like us in the real world, we don't see bastardy as even remotely the issue that they see it in mainland Westeros. So it's a little strange that, that someone like Craster would also think uh, of it this way. Some people wonder about how many generations Craster has been in this incest cycle. We talked about that a little earlier, but yeah, we don't have a strong answer. But as Ashea and I uh, seem to agree that it's probably at most one or two of his wives that are, that are not related to him. Among, uh, with the axe, um, Mormont's gift, Ed complains about it. And it's, a, it's kind of a gray area, actually, because... We learned that it's a crime to sell or trade weapons to the wildlings. Now, Ed doesn't mention that, but he just points out, you know, it's not a good idea to give weapons to the wildlings. He says that it's kind of false foreshadowing in a sense. He says Craster's axe is going to kill Mormont. Mormont is going to die at Craster's. So it's close, but Craster's not the one who does it. In fact, when Mormont dies, Craster is already dead. Archmaster Rennie asks a great question. Could Craster's father be Bloodraven? Yes, he could be. I don't have anything directly to tie them together, but the, the question is, does the timeline fit? The answer is yes. 
Craster is an old man. It's about the year 298 at this point. Blood Raven disappeared beyond the wall in the year 252. He he joined, he went to the wall uh, at um, around 130 or 236, I believe it was. Uh, so that's a pretty wide range for him to, uh, you know, if Craster is 50 or 60, then that lines up. And 50 or 60 sounds about right for It Craster. could also be, I mean, that Blood Raven would know the man who you know slept with the wildling woman that's a good point if he does if it's not him and then he might know who it was because he was lord commander during the era yeah. that's pretty likely he would know all, birth. you know all the men is lord commander and if, if it's known then he would have to decide how to punish him yeah good point so speaking of blood raven the raven uh, doesn't say much in this chapter but we have to wonder what blood raven thinks of craster I mean, probably nothing good but so even if unless you know unless he's his son, he still wouldn't think much good of him, but uh, he would have more complicated thoughts of him if he's his son. Uh, now, given our criticisms of Mormon here, perhaps Bloodraven sees reason to criticize Craster as well. Uh, if not his plan, perhaps he disapproves of Craster in general. And this, I think we get, maybe this is what we get here. Uh, the Raven craps on Mormon's shoulder immediately after John thinks how he's not going to eat Craster's food but Mormon has just eaten Craster's food. <laughs> so, and just before that, Mormont says, best keep an edge on that sword, which is kind of an odd line since Valyrian steel doesn't ever lose its edge, but it's just an expression indicating be ready for action. So we don't need to take that literally. But interestingly, the Raven flies to Longclaw and perches on it right after Mormont says that. So it's like the Raven kind of showing some even more signs of intelligence uh, that were um, always on the lookout for. Okay. Uh, that is John 2, or John 3, rather. Really full, thorough chapter. So much to do in that one. Big chapter. Uh, I hope we covered it um, to your satisfaction. Let's move on. Theon 2. Theon tries to bang his sister, a.k.a. the gang starts a war. The Iron Gang, that is. Asha isn't yet a point of view, but this chapter is as much about her as it is about him, pretty much. And the one, and this is the one where Theon gets his new ship. It's a ship he's only going to sail once. Quote. She was undeniably of beauty. I usually save the listener comments for the end, sometimes in the middle. But Stefan B. nailed it so well that I'm just going to quote him here. Well, rather, Shea is going to quote him here. Theon's overconfidence is amplified by the fact that... Uh pun intended, fish out of water on the Iron Islands. In the Greenland, his confidence was at least part, partly backed by skills in battle and archery. It's very cruel of George to throw this particular character into an environment so alien to him. No comparison to how Arya and Sansa cope. Yeah, they adapt. This is a really good comment. It's so true. He learns at Winterfell, so of course his skill set is going to be like any northern noble youth is going to be uh thus not learning how to sail not learning how to reeve and raid so yeah and uh like stefan says Arya and sansa adapt to their surroundings and, and theon just complains and tries to make things fit him which is more of the like joffrey cersei viserys method uh especially in this chapter when when theon has a line like men and fight should fight and die for him simply because he's their prince we know that's not how it works we know that people will fight for someone who's not their prince but they will gladly declare him their prince because they love him <laughs> him renly so 
just being their prince isn't good enough, especially in times like these when, as we hear elsewhere, kings are you know sprouting like mushrooms after a rain. And it makes sense for Balon to send experienced people like Dagmar Clefjaw with Theon because of this lack of experience. Now, Theon takes it as an insult because he doesn't really recognize that problem in himself uh, Dagmar will later try to explain this to him, but it it doesn't really steer Theon off of his frustration, nor certainly doesn't steer him off of his uh, eventual ambitious plan to take Winterfell. Now, beyond these obvious cultural blind spots that Theon is showing, there's also small signs that he just lacks the typical ironborn toughness. The, the little signs like the smell of thick cream making him queasy and that he can't hold his wine, that he's... Uh, unsteady on the rope bridge in the storm how he reacts to being embarrassed by asha is not uh it's not not very uh very tough <laughs> it's it's he kind of it it, it pushes him it, it shows him it gets him off his game and it's not good to be off your game as we see like cersei as, as Tyrion points out i like when cersei is is paranoid and on you know not rather than being cold and calculating uh, one of the ways theon tries to pretend he's closer to his culture than he really is are when he thinks things like the sea is in my blood and I, you know, I'm a born Greyjoy, so I can do these things. Uh, so he's projecting your blood doesn't make up for your lack of sailing experience, dude, but he might be right in an indirect way, in a way that he's not fully aware of. And in fact, he's probably not aware at all that there's things in the ancient past with the ironborn that may indicate that his blood does make him a little different, like all Ironborn. There is some evidence that the Ironborn are a race apart, even though this is such an ancient uh, distinction. Still, their past contains some very dark connections. The, the Drowned God may be a modern interpretation of an ancient truth. In other words, it's a great excuse for us to do a little delving into, the, into these super ancient legends surrounding the Ironborn, especially since it's this chapter where we get this quote. Lord Balon occupied the sea stone chair, carved in the shape of a great kraken from an immense block of oily black stone. Legend said the first men had found it standing on the shore of Old Wick when they came to the Iron Island. Oh, yeah, the oily black stone. I can call it the OBS, even Which though it's is, also the name of our uh, uh, live streaming software. Yeah. <laughs> it's perfect. OBS. That's a very uh, mysterious uh, <laughs> streaming software. Yeah. That's ancient uh, it's <laughs> from very, a time it's before software. It's very powerful, though, too. <laughs> it is very powerful. <laughs> now, I have a few th different things to say about the Oily Black Zone in Danny 2, which is only a few chapters from now, because it relates to different aspects of ancient history and backstory. There'll be more when we get to Euron, too. But uh, Euron as well, not Euron 2. <laughs> but here in Theon 2, the relevant thing is the Ironborn's blood. The phrase, what is dead may never die, was introduced last chapter. And as many of you are aware, that's a notable nod to H.B. Lovecraft, who wrote, quote, That is not dead, which can eternal lie, and with strange eons, even death may die. That line appears in The Call of Cthulhu, one of his, maybe his most famous stories, also appears in the Metallica song, um, the thing that should not be. But hey, that's another uh, that's another project, to a topic rather. Yeah, it's too bad we couldn't just play that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> copyright strikes <laughs> incoming. <laughs> also, I think it would have disturbed our listeners very much. So <laughs> <laughs> Sudden heavy metal. <laughs> 
uh, and um, and I'm I agree that uh, this is an inspiration for the drowned god. That Cthulhu is an inspiration for the drowned god. I mean, think of think of what Cthulhu is a horrible, horrific tentacled monster who lives beneath the sea, has a cult, drives people insane, and gives other people nightmares. So, I mean, that's pretty close. We don't know what the drowned god looks like, whether he's a horrible tentacled monster, but they do worship krakens, you know, the Greyjoys and others. Uh, and you know, the building beneath the sea, the worship of him is pretty cult-like, especially look at someone like Aaron, who's on display in this chapter. Anyway, so that's, uh, there's, there's a lot more to say about that, but this is not where we do deep, full deep dives and things like that. We have them on other episodes like the great empire of the dawn and things like that. Joe Buckley calls this the best chapter in the series for reread purposes. It's hilarious. It's a personal favorite of his because he just he just loves the uh, how silly Theon looks. And the humiliation is incredibly specific to Theon's particular psyche. His whole intro has been about finding power through dominating women, but here he is not only completely hoodwinked by one, he then finds out the same woman is far more respected and far more entrenched in this, quote, male model of the Ironborn. She has taken the role. Asha is what Theon wants to be. And this is galling to him because he looks down on women and she's just better than he is at all of this. And she's really masterful in her manipulation. It's such a great introduction. We've got to just to interrupt you. We've got a really good quote for right here, too. Okay, I'll go Valon for it. even refers to Asha as a son. Yeah, that's a really good point. Right here saying, Victorian, Lord Balon said to his brother, the main thrust shall fall to you. When my sons have struck their blows, Winterfell must respond. Yeah, Theon doesn't respond to it that way, but it's still very telling. Like He doesn't take note of her being called a son, but we certainly do, and it's a big deal. Uh, so it's, a, it's really cool, too. Like Another point Joe makes here that I really agree with, she turns his usual sexual interactions on their head, learning information from him, about about rob and his wars and theon's personality and i mean she, it's, it's true she just completely owns him theon's ambition is very much on display but so is asha's like like i said in the beginning this is this chapter is as much about her as it is about him she recognizes theon as a potential rival and just does the thing the best thing you can do to a, a, a power rival other than you know kill them is to just make him look weak. That's such a big deal in the Ironborn, like uh, the Ironborn culture. He's he hasn't been seen in ten years, and immediately he's being embarrassed. It's it's a bad way to make your debut among your people, and he's aware of it. He's sort of aware of it. He kind of lies to himself, and at one point he finally starts to show a little bit of 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 self awareness where he says oh he she made me look so it's like i look so bad i made such a fool of myself but then he's but then his narcissism just kicks back and he says no she made a fool of me it's her fault it's like oh theon you were almost there you almost started taking responsibility but no and he blames wex his squire for not telling him things like that you know he blames anybody but himself almost blames himself but then he just he's like no i'm not gonna blame myself <laughs> now interestingly there's a kind of a odd a uh, little reference here. Theon tells a story about playing a harp and keeping Esgrid high in a tower. Is is this a little bit of Rhaegar nod here? He he probably heard the story about Rhaegar, uh, at least a little bit about it. Rhaegar's harp is, you know, people know about that. Uh, I don't think we get much Ironborn thinking about Rhaegar anywhere, but uh, in general, they'd be more supportive of multiple wives, given their culture. 
Uh, so let's talk about Balon's plan for a second. It's funny how terrible Balon's war plan is. It's so bad that it almost speaks for itself, but it, in some ways it doesn't because it's terrible in so many different ways that even a thorough analysis doesn't reveal all the reasons it's bad. <laughs> There's so many angles to the badness of his strategy that uh, it it takes uh, I've y'all have written in with so many different things that are wrong with this plan. And there's so many valid angles <laughs> to why it's wrong. And not no one has covered all of it because there's just so many reasons why this plan is bad. Maybe George is making some kind of statement about a lot of wars are started like this for, for bad reasons with bad with a bad chance of success just because of things like grievances and pride, which is a, a huge key to Balon's position here. As Asha herself points out later, the North is too full of Northmen. That's one big problem with it. They will take it back eventually. You can't just, you're not going to be able to hold it. They don't have enough manpower. And that includes the key to Balon's plan, Moat Kalen. He thinks he's trapped Rob in the South, but we know better. Yeah, he's not wrong that if Rob attacks Moat Kalen from the South, he's going to have a hard time of it. But it's not hard to take from the North. And we just pointed out there's plenty of Northerners left in the North. Yeah, a lot of them went south with Rob, but there's still plenty left up there. There's plenty to, to attack Mo Kalen from its undefended side. So in the ner- very next Eon chapter, it comes up that the Ironborn are not skilled in siege warfare. That goes both ways. Being not skilled at using siege warfare also means you aren't skilled at defending against it. They're not that skilled at defense in general. They And, and so... They don't have the the skills to hold the North, to defend the North, let alone the manpower. So they, they don't have any of the things it takes to, to for this plan to work. So, but there's more reasons it's dumb. It's not just the difficulty in holding it. It's the, it's why the North, it's the poorest of the regions were all, while also being the largest. So you just get less bang for your difficult to hold buck. Now, Asha goes to take Deepwood Mott. She's successful, but so what? It's not an important place. It's not a strategic uh, spot at all. It's just a, one of the northern castles on the coast. It's like, well, we want to take that back, but it's not some great strategic holding that allows them to to hit the north in a lot of different places. It's pretty weak. So, gosh, most importantly, though, the perhaps the dumbest thing of all, probably the dumbest thing of all, He's attacking the one kingdom willing to ally with him and the one kingdom willing to help him fight for his own independence. And this is all just because of his grudges. It's, it's incredibly stupid and small-minded. Rob is just about, as we saw in the last chapter, or two chapters ago, rather, is about to start hammering the West with his army. Imagine if Balon was doing that at the same time. That would have been really effective. Not only that, if Balon does beat Rob, it doesn't get him independence. He still has to contend with the Iron Throne while holding the North, who it's, who aren't going to be easily held. So he's going to end up, he's basically setting himself up, even if he beats Rob, to have to continue to fight the rest of the North while also holding on to his new kingdom from people like Tywin. Balon tries to ally with Tywin later, and Tywin basically says the same thing we just said about the Northerners eventually pushing him out. He's like, I'm going to ignore Balon's offer. Let's ignore it. He ignores it. How how's your pride liking that, Balon? I mean, it's he's one of the reasons he strikes out is because of his pride and this pitfalls here. It just gets worse. But one thing he does have in common with Tywin 
is he, like Tywin, won't see just how big a failure his legacy is going to be, given his death is going to come before his plans start to really sink. I can imagine the drowned god just, like, shaking his head at Balon when he arrives. He's like, good attitude, son, but terrible planning, you know? I like the way, I like your attitude bringing back the old way, but you should have thought it through a lot better. But Theon will see this collapse. Theon is going to see it, and in that, we will see part of what gives him his huge character change, from naive and cocky to wary and, well, Ramsay made sure he's definitely not cocky. <laughs> Vandalay Industries latex salesman and friend of the show, Dom Tartaglia, wants to know if there's any real-world inspiration for the finger dance, which we see introduced in this chapter. This is another uh, conversation that had more meat to it on Facebook because a lot of ideas were thrown about. I don't know, so I'm not going to bring up all these different details uh, because it's so uncertain. But one thing that was mentioned in that thread that I think has a chance to be the inspiration is the knife game, you know, where people kind of go the knife between the fingers back and forth. Uh, yeah, when I first was first reading the books and heard about, you know, the finger dance, that's exactly what I thought it was going to be. And then, obviously, she gets thrown her 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 blades and you're like oh this is something else entirely <laughs> yeah uh jaded redhead may i kindly ask for a shout out from my husband derek whose birthday is on halloween well yeah happy birthday no. derek no that's why i put it there no <laughs> she sorry put derek so I wouldn't no read shout it. out yeah <laughs> uh another great point in this chapter that i didn't put in my notes but i was just recalling is that victorian is later it pointed out that he never laughs he doesn't trust laughter but he laughs in this chapter and it's because it he he's never sure if the joke is at him or not but in this in this chapter it's so abundantly clear that people are laughing at theon because asha chops his bowl of stew in half and the cream goes all over him and so clearly it's this physical humor where there's no doubt who's being laughed at. So it's pretty bad when a guy who never laughs, laughs at you. <laughs> and it's his own uncle, his own family member. Uh, so here's a description of Asha. Let's talk about Asha's um, looks because it's another uh, example of someone who doesn't quite look the same in the books and show. Although she's less different than some others, she's still definitely different. Quote. Ironborn, he knew at a glance, lean and long, long-legged with black hair cut short, wind-chafed skin, strong, sure hands, a dirk at her belt. Her nose was too big and too sharp for her thin face, but her smile made up for it. He judged her a few years older than he was, but no more than five and twenty. She moved as if she were used to a deck beneath her feet. Unlike him, who, as we already pointed out, does not move as if he was used to a deck beneath his feet because he's not used to a deck beneath his feet. Also, you could think I, Theon probably isn't Ironborn. He knew at a glance. No one <laughs> probably looks at him and is like, that's an Ironborn. Good point. <laughs> he may be, uh, from, uh, from his appearance, but like his clothing, she'd be like, ooh, what is up with that dude? <laughs> <laughs> so compare that to that, that uh, description to Gemma Whalen. Uh, I guess it's a rare example of them not like way attractifying the character um, not that Gemma Whalen isn't attractive but they didn't go for like super hot where they did do that for a lot of the other characters she is older yeah which is the same across the board for the most part that is but true. no Asha in the books it, it is such a very particular description there I don't know it was very notable to me when she was described she has just such 
sharp features and leanness and long. It's just very different yeah. than um, Gemma. Gemma Whalen's hair is, is longish. It's not short like, uh, like, like Asha's and her hair isn't black. Uh, mm-hmm. She doesn't have wind-chafed skin, <laughs> but... Or this big nose or this and big nose, thin, yeah. sharp face. But yeah, anyways. Also, yeah. her name is Yara, not Asha yeah. on the show. <laughs> and Yara is bisexual. George R. R. Martin says that Asha is not. So that's interesting. Yeah, and well, I think Gemma has been like, it's Pan, or I don't know, whatever. Yeah. Theon is at least accurate in guessing her age. He thinks she's no more than 25, and she is about 23. Another really interesting difference here, Nina points out that Asha is, uh, we, we see here that Asha cares about her mother, and Theon, despite not having been home in 10 years, is not bothered to go see her, which is just another thing <laughs> designed to make us dislike Theon. There's so many reasons why we don't like Theon, but not, you know, going to see your mother after 10 years is just like, come on, dude, that's, that's something that everyone You're in the depressed, room wants to mother. be like. What's uh-huh. that? You're depressed mother, too. Yeah, he's very depressed, from traumatized lost mother. everything. Yeah. Not quite everything, but lost her her boys, her sons. Yeah, and and feels like, and she later we'll see. She asks about Theon, and it's like, and Asha's like, I don't want to tell you what happened to him, mm. but uh, but she also like, it's like, damn it, Theon, you should have at least come to see her. He's also oblivious about other things. Uh, here's a quote: Iron men did not bend their knees often nor easily, but Theon noted that oarsmen and town folk alike grew quiet as they passed and acknowledged him with respectful bows of the head. So. When he realizes that it's Asha, uh, he thinks back on all the embarrassing things he did. But this is not one of the things he realizes. They were not bowing their heads to him, probably. They were bowing to her. It's possible they were bowing to both. But definitely they're bowing to Asha because they know her and they don't know him. Yeah, and he, I mean, he thinks, he's like, oh, they're finally learning. Yeah. (laughs) And here's another quote that just... Yet again, a reason to be like, gosh, Theon, you suck. (laughs) That's my cursed luck. I kill the poor. And this is when he thinks about how he doesn't have any uh, things he paid the iron price for to to dress up in. Yeah. He goes to this feast. (laughs) So that's your luck. You kill the poor. Yeah. Not that the poor, it's not the poor's luck, but also notable because, of course, uh, his Winterfell plot line, he kills the poor. He sure did. Stefan B., whose name's coming up a lot in this one, a lot of good uh, catches from him in this one. He he says, he points out the Theon thinks, may the others take her about Asha, which interestingly might be more than just a casual line. Uh, it's probably just a curse, but given where she is in the Dance with Dragons, which is in the north, held by Stannis captive with a busted ankle. So yeah, if Stannis gets overrun by the others, which is entirely possible, uh, she could be still be his captive when things go bad. Uh, and when the others arrive, they break through the wall. So she might get taken by the others, uh, which would be a very different from her show ending. But uh, I think we kind of already have good reason to think that she's going to have a different ending on, on the books in the show, which is a great reason to be uh, pay more attention to whatever foreshadowing and uh, little tidbits George says about her because we're on the lookout for something different. That is it for... Uh, Theon 2. Let us go to Tyrion 6. The gang here is Stannis' fighting Renly, aka the one where Shagga's a barber. Quote, let's go right to it. Through the door came the soft sound of the high harp mingled with the trilling of pipes. Cersei has musicians, and they're playing a song that's familiar to Tyrion as he's approaching her quarters. So let's go right to the next few lines as well. Quote, 
The singer's voice was muffled by the thick walls, yet Tyrion knew the verse. I loved a maid as fair as summer, he remembered, with sunlight in her hair. In this, we have a blatant, blatant, I say, example of something that means nothing to a first-time reader, yet looms hugely on rereads. That is the song Tyrion associates with Tysha, but he does not think of that here. The connection is made is not made clear until his final chapter in this book. It's almost like a climactic moment because it's his, you know, that's usually what final chapters in multi-book epics do. <laughs> they They set big things up. So... There's no indication he's thinking about Taisha here. He's only thought about Taisha a little bit at all to this point in his arc. So it's a impossible to get thing on the first time through. Now, we love to talk about how Tyrion has so much in common with Tywin. There are also, of course, major differences. And of course, I don't mean the obvious ones like appearance. I mean that when Tywin comes to resume his duty as hand, he cows Joffrey and Cersei. They just wilt under his just authority and presence and, and potency, whereas Tyrion has to work around them right he's constantly kind of managing things despite their interference and their their clumsiness and, and things like that and this really peaks in this chapter where he one distracts joffrey with a new toy that crossbow while also dosing cersei with this bottle he stole from picel but these are short-term solutions these are just like i said short distractions they're not going to last forever but that's okay he doesn't have to keep this up forever he's not going to be hand forever He's only going to be hand until the war is over or until Tywin comes to take the job back. Now, it's the perfect moment for Cersei uh, to be drugged because she's in a rare, happy moment uh, because Tyrion delivers the news that Renly and Stannis are fighting each other. Uh, a small tidbit here, it's Cersei kissing Lancel very chastely, which is uh, sneaky considering what we're about to learn about their relationship, but not till next, uh, next episode. She's funny and charming when she's not paranoid sometimes. She has a lot of funny lines in the series, although not many of them have come yet. Uh, more and more of them are going to be coming over the next few books. Cersei thinks, or Tyrion thinks how beautiful she is. He realizes when she's being sweet, when she's smiling, it's really quite astonishing how, how lovely she is. Something that Kevin thinks about later too. It's, it's, it's uh, a big deal. <laughs> And he thinks, in light of that, he thinks of this loved a maid quote again while thinking about her because of her her hair and her smiles, which is, you know. Which is, I mean, I don't think we really see a lot of that in Game of Thrones at all in the show. We don't see her, I, I don't know, as joyful. Not too often, no. No. No, like there are some moments of joy for her, but yeah. I mean, I don't see her certainly laughing and twirling around like this, yeah. like... Yeah, this moment didn't happen where she actually picks Cersei or picks Tyrion up and spins him around. Yeah, that's that don't that doesn't happen. Helena no, no. <laughs> Heaty doesn't lift Peter Tinklage up. <laughs> uh, so on Cersei, I want to say a few things. She's not a good mother, but she is protective. That is at least something even Tyrion acknowledges that is apart from her cheekbones. He says kind of jokingly that it's her best quality protecting uh, her protectiveness. Uh, but she does remain very interesting as a reread because the more we parse her TV version, which was a really strong presence. I mean, Lena Headey was really owned that role really well. A lot of people, even even those of us who have lots of fair complaints about the show, it's hard to to complain about Lena Headey's uh, acting and her portrayal. I mean, there are fair criticisms of it, but she was very strong. But she's purely antagonistic in the books at this point. She has not earned much sympathy, if any. 
And even later, she may not earn much. Uh, in her POV, uh, it's not like Jing, where we uh, start to see, oh, you know, he's not entirely bad. He's got some good points. Some of his, okay, the vow thing, okay, he's he's starting to become a better person. You know, he's not rehabilitated, but, you know, there are times where you root for him, and some people root for him a lot. Cersei pretty much just, I don't, there's not a lot of rooting for her at any point, uh, though it does happen in the show a little bit. There's definitely people who are Cersei stands, show Cersei, but book Cersei does not have a lot of stands. <laughs> that's a good point yeah that is and this is part of why it's just, there is less to like about her and there's no like great acting portrayal to kind of help win us over you know uh you don't like there's no oh we i really like that actress you know part of why people like theon on the show too where we don't have that here because there's no alfie allen to win us over it's really similar for for uh for theon or for uh cersei slash lena Headey. but moving on there's an interesting quote here um that that Ashea, you noted this one i like mm-hmm. this quote Tyrion looked down on them all and found he liked it. Of course, he's on the Iron Throne when that quote is uh, is, is made. And it kind of reminds me of the old small man casting a large shadow kind of uh, reference type thing. Also, maybe uh, a reference to his possible dragon riding later. If that happens, well, he would be looking down on them all from an even higher vantage point. And Danny at one point, words it kind of similarly. So we also have in this chapter, Cleos and the fake offer. Uh, meaning uh, sending the guards with four of them who are uh, plants as uh, operatives, undercover operatives, to try to free Jamie. Ed Muir is going to describe what, how that goes down uh, in what's going to be our part seven. That's Catelyn five. Tywin, uh, Tywin's influence on Tyrion shows up when Tyrion publicly declares in front of court that Cleos should tell Rob that they're willing to trade two Northerners for every single Lannister. Certain specific examples are given, but the specifics aren't important. The point is that he's publicly declaring that Lannisters are worth more than Northerners, and that's the kind of sentiment that, that Tywin would appreciate and approve of, and uh, you can see where, uh, where Tyrion gets that. Now, here's another catch that Ashea made here that's really good. It's not clear where what everyone thinks of Arya at this point but it becomes clear here because she's brought up uh Cleos says as you say to Tyrion and his sisters Tyrion glanced towards Sansa and felt a stab of pity as he said until such time as he frees my brother Jamie unharmed they shall remain they shall remain here as hostages how well they are treated depends on him and if the gods are good, Bywater will find Arya alive before Rob learns she's gone missing. So he's just told, he just lied to Cleos and the court, the rest of the court saying he's got Arya. But Sansa knows better. Sansa, who's sitting there listening, who's been thinking she's hoping that Sansa has got, or that Arya's gotten to Winterfell or Riverrun, and she's imagined that she has. Now she knows that she's not. So... Tyrion has renewed confidence that she's still somewhere in King's Landing from this moment because he knows that Cleos... Yeah, she's not given, with Rob. Yeah, Cleos has just sure. revealed that Arya's not with Rob. So Tyrion's like, okay, well, maybe she is here. <laughs> so no one knows where she is, but they both have... Uh, so, but, so now Sansa knows that uh, no one knows where she is, and Tyrion uh, knows that the North doesn't have her. No so, one do- does know where she is. <laughs> no one does. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, so Tyrion has concern for his dignity 
uh, when Alistair Thorne is speaking of the dead, it's kind of a theme here, the, the Lannister pride, but also his own pride, because he knows how important it is for people not to laugh at him, because he's already constantly um, being laughed at, and he can't allow that to get out of hand. Uh, he needs to be taken seriously. He needs to maintain his authority. And so, what better way than to spin that and to make them laugh at Alistair before they could ever laugh at him? Now, Alistair is just terrible at this. He's horrible at this diplomacy. He's, he's possibly worse at this than he was at training, uh, being the master at arms at the Night's Watch. And he was bad at that. He calls Tyrion imp. He calls the small council servants <laughs> and says, this matter is too important to be brought before anyone but the king. And he's talking about Joffrey, like Joffrey's going to do anything. I mean, good job, Alistair. You stink. <laughs> <clears throat> So we have uh, also confronting Pycelle, who just continues, even as he's being dragged away, Varys, it was Varys. It's pretty pathetic. Uh, and it's a funny scene. Um, for example, his he, there's urine spraying in all directions, <laughs> just because he's so, as Shag is shaving him, he's like just terrified. Because, I mean, to be fair, uh, we would all be terrified too. It's Timmit and Shaga <laughs> busting down his door. Like those are terrifying folk. <laughs> and and then, but we get a great line here. Uh, Tyrion's like, "Don't worry," because because uh, Pycelle's with some serving girl, some young lady, and and she's terrified too. And Tyrion's like, "Don't worry, we don't want you." And Shaga's like, "I want her." <laughs> and and. and and uh, Tim, it's like, you want all the women. And he's like, yeah, <laughs> I do. I'll give them strong sons. So Shaga's funny. I like Shaga. He wants to Shaga all the women. <laughs> I actually never got that. <laughs> it's good. That might be it. Shaga. Yeah, <laughs> he does want to shag them all. Despite uh, Pycelle's lame protestations, the line, make no mistake, for every secret the eunuch whispers in your ear, he holds seven back, is true. I mean, that is 100% accurate about Varus. So, but still, he has no call to blame Varus for this particular thing. It was definitely 100% his leak of Tyrion's plan about Marcella and Dorne that got him in this pickle. However... I think it's fair, and other people have made this point in our chats and in our uh, on Facebook and Flick, that maybe this was not the right way to handle it. I mean, he's, yeah, sure, it's fair to say that Tyrion uh, can't trust Pycelle, but Pycelle is a Lannister toady, and there's, you can make use of that. And he even realizes that this is, despite catching Pycelle, it doesn't prove that Varys and Littlefinger aren't, aren't untrustworthy. He knows they're untrustworthy, he just didn't catch them at it. So it's, uh, yeah, it, it's not, maybe not the best way he could have handled it, but it's still fun to see Tyrion operate. Lancel points out here that, what's up? Oh, nothing. I was just laughing at that when you said Lancel points out here. <laughs> I just, I was Lancel with his infinite wisdom. He says, I would have had their tongues out, which is uh, in referring to the, uh, the preachers. Um, and Cersei said the same thing just a few chapters ago. So you can see that uh, he's probably getting that from her. It's probably not his, you know, he, his own opinion. He's just parroting her. 
I mean, he's 16. He's not supposed to, you know, he's not some really smart kid. <laughs> he's just a, pretty much being manipulated by Cersei. But more on that in the next chapter when we get to get deeper into their relationship. Um, here's the quote we referred to earlier. Let's actually read it rather than just talking about it. It's a bizarre image, isn't it? Tyrion threw back his head and roared. They laughed together. Cersei pulled him off the bed and whirled him around and even hugged him for a moment as giddy as a girl. On top of that, next week, uh, when Renly and Stannis parlay, when they have their, what I call, banter battle, and it goes poorly, Catelyn is going to think this. Cersei Lannister is laughing herself breathless, Catelyn thought wearily. Yep. <laughs> breathless indeed. She lifts him up and spins him around, and yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's going to make her breathless. So... Also, in reference to Alistair Thorne, he talks about, you know, uh, he makes that makes them, everybody laugh at him by sending spades with him. And he's like, spades, what are those for? He walks into the joke. <laughs> Here, quote. If you bury your dead, they won't come walking, Tyrion told him. But really, that's not true. <laughs> yeah, they will. You should be burning them. Yes. Which and is... this obviously makes us think of the crypts of Winterfell. <laughs> yes, you should not be burying them. You should be burning them. The North. Forgot that one. They usually remember, but that's one where they forgot. The Knights watched it too. Gior even says it. He should have remembered. Yes, fire. Mm -hmm. Anyway, here's another line that uh, that's we both, Shay and I, that is, think is really funny. Quote. Littlefinger was not appeased. I do not like being lied to, my lord. Leave me out of your next deception. <laughs> this is like doubly hilarious to me Little because Finger. Littlefinger is very deceitful, but also... Does anyone like being lied to and want to be part of like a deception that they don't know about? No, yeah. no one does. Leave me out of your next assassination attempt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, like uh, the, stating the obvious. Yeah, talk about <laughs> Captain Obvious. Yeah, <laughs> Littlefinger goes from ultra subtle to Captain Obvious. <laughs> and here's another line. <laughs> May they... May they battle long and hard, and the others take them both. <laughs> yeah, that's, of course, Stannis and Renly being talked about. Now, the others are not going to take Renly, because the shadow baby's taking him. But the others might take Stannis. That no. could very much happen. And how perfect is this? We did not plan this. We couldn't have planned this. I didn't even catch this quote until this reread. And y'all know I've read the books a lot of times, countless times. We have a Halloween quote. We have an actual Halloween reference, and it's the only one I'm aware of, but it is in this chapter. What timing quote? Cersei bolted to her feet, and yet you sit there grinning like a Harvest Day pumpkin. Harvest Day pumpkin. Grinning. Grinning, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a jack-o'-lantern. <laughs> Hell yeah. That's awesome. In this case, it's a Tyrion-o'-lantern, Tyrion-o'-lantern. Because <laughs> that line comes when... She says, Stannis has sailed. And she's like, what? Bah! And then that's before she tells him, he's told her that uh, he sailed for Dragon's, or for, for Storm's End. So here's a question, another question from Stefan B, who, as I've said, is, is crushing it today with the questions. Was giving Stannis Dragonstone meant as a slight? Cersei indicates in this chapter that it was, and that seems to be uh, a popular interpretation. However, we don't have to interpret this. George has done it from his quote from the SSM right here. But it's not necessarily true that Robert meant it that way. The Targaryen heir apparent had always been titled Prince of Dragonstone. By making Stannis the Lord of Dragonstone, Robert affirmed his brother's status as heir, 
which he was until Joff's birth a few years later. Robert could just as lawfully retain both castles for his sons and made Joffrey the Prince of Dragonstone and Tommen the Lord of Storm's End. Giving them to his brothers instead was another instance of his great, but rather careless, generosity. I think that's the more accurate idea myself. I don't see Robert as particularly malicious towards at least his brothers to certain people a little bit, but yeah, um, I, I, I don't think he is malicious towards Stannis or certainly not Renly. That ex- yeah, I mean, of course it's George, so we it's it's law, it's it's word, yeah, the word of he, God, but it fits he, so well. He's not saying that this is the case. Yeah, uh, he says not necessarily because he doesn't always like to like fully explain what what his character's thinking of. He doesn't. He wants to leave some nuance and to leave some mystery but it does fit really well i agree with that it's it's very strong to say robert is is, yeah robert isn't vindictive robert isn't like petty like that uh so like oh screw stannis yeah it's it's stannis interpreted that (laughs) way even though though he did uh do some very disrespectful things to stannis but again careless careless makes more sense yeah that rather than intentional insult now cersei would have done that. That's the kind of thing Cersei would do. So she sees it as an insult because yeah, it looks yeah. like that to her and to Stannis and so and to a lot of others. So it's fair to interpret it that way. But as George says, that's not necessarily accurate. And that does it for Tyrion Six. Now Arya Six. The gang gets tickled, aka the one where Arya starts her list. And it isn't pretty. This is an extremely brutal chapter. George R. R. Martin does a great job of writing Lovecraft-style fear and horror, as we've uh, explained in the Theon chapter and, of course, in chapters like the prologue. But this one is more in line with modern slasher films, but with the very notable difference of the gore and torture being mostly implied rather than directly seen. And that's a huge difference from the TV show. (laughs) They just really wanted to show the torture. This overwhelming aspect of this chapter begins, as it so often does, with the first line, just boom, right away. <laughs> fear cuts deeper than swords, Arya would tell herself, but that did not make the fear go away. We all like to talk about how George does gray characters really well and how most of them are gray, but not all. If every character was gray, well, that would be just as unrealistic as trying to, you know, as, as trying to make everyone black and white. Well, maybe not as unrealistic, but unrealistic, because some people are just awful. There's just basically no uh, rehabilitating them, even if you point out that Gregor Clegane has, you know, maybe a bad upbringing and that he's in constant pain. But yeah, he, still, that could be true. And then maybe like maybe he still is irredeemable. He will never, ever be a better person. Yeah. Like even if it wasn't his fault that he was he became the way he was. Well, there's, yeah, there's no taming him. Yeah, there's no taming him. him. Yeah. yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, you can even if you recognize that he is a product of his environment, that doesn't mean you can do anything about it. And he, the kind of guy like him, he attracts like-minded, well, not souls, but beasts. Let's say this is this 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 chapter is full of torture, rape, executions. The the villagers are blamed for harboring Beric Dondarrion, even though they had no choice. They just had stuff taken from them. Here's an interesting little point, too. It's uh, We get the list, which is cool. This is our first time. Quote. Sir Gregor, she whispered to her stone pillow. Dunson, Holliver, Chiswick, Raff the Sweetling, the Tickler and the Hound, Sir Armory, Sir Illin, Sir Marin, Sir Joffrey, 
Queen Cersei. Sir Joffrey, you said. Oh, you're that's how I that's what I think of him. <laughs> He's no king to me. I shouldn't no. have even made him a knight, Joffrey. <laughs> and you know, really? Yeah. Or you shouldn't call them King and Queen Cersei. Well, that's Just, someone I, actually made that comment that oh, it, it's interesting that she gives them her titles. Them, yeah, she offers them that respect. Sir Armory, Sir Illin. Yeah, yeah, that is interesting. Every, yeah, it's the full the their full I mean, I, I I to a certain respect, um, it makes me think of the idea of her being disillusioned with these titles. Yeah, right. You know, like, yeah, they they, they are knights. They are kings and queens, and they are terrible. Yeah. Hmm. So from that list, Chiswick is going to go first in her next chapter. And then Wheeze right after. Uh, he's added and killed in Aria 8, though she regrets it and tries to stop it from happening because she thinks of it. She realizes it's a waste to kill Wheeze. But she is too late to stop it of course in this chapter two we get some world building we got heron hall which is a location that is in the top five for most chapters and scenes i think in the entire series um you know it's behind winterfell and king's landing and the wall but there's a lot at heron hall it starts here but we also get you know our uh we get a lot of aria here uh we get jamie here we get brian we get yeah or brian remembering it uh, so yeah, it's it's quite a bit. <clears throat> and well, it's introduced like this, quote. It would not be much longer, she told herself. Those towers cannot be more than a few miles off. Yet they walked all that day and most of the next before at last they reached the fringes of Lord Tywin's army and camped west of the castle amidst the scorched remains of the town. Hall was deceptive from afar because it was so huge. Its colossal curtain walls rose beside the lake, sheer and sudden as mountain cliffs, while atop their battlements the rows of wood and iron scorpions looked as small as the bugs for which they were named. Yeah, all of those wood and iron scorpions tried to take down Balerion, uh, and instead Balerion took down those towers. Well, not all the way down, but he melted them, <laughs> and they were never the same. Now, there is very little separating these villagers uh, that Gregor is leading to Harrenhal, among, uh, also other villagers who were led there prior, from slaves. I mean, there's almost nothing that changed. They, they have no freedom to leave. They're forced to come and serve Tywin. It's, it's really not much different than slavery. Yeah, I mean, it's they're... Their, their concentration camps. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, that right. woman has the nerve to tell Arya that this will be a better world for her. Yeah. That's what she tells her. And then yeah. is so brutal to her after Arya's like, I'd rather tend the stables. And she smacks her and is like, okay, if you're going to talk, then you're going to wheeze. Like, yes. that's cruel. And of course, this is an old woman, also a product of her environment, but one of the few who has actually survived from the prior regime. And, and thinks she's all the better for it. That's yeah. what she thinks. Yeah. Maybe she may well be. She may well be one of the few people that has been has actually benefited. Yeah. And I will uh we will have a where are they now on uh, a lot of these characters including Arya's list and including these two women, uh good wife Hera and good wife Amabel who yeah, as you might guess, they uh don't have um, a great uh future. <laughs> uh so here's an interesting point. Uh we we get uh, sneaky references to Ares. Here's a quote. King Ares 
God's grace him, the old man said too loudly. And that was in reference to how this old man is saying, no, it wouldn't have been like this under the old king. And Arya's like, Robert? And, you know, Arya wasn't alive during Arya's time, so she has no idea what this means. But it's it's a it's George doing some some cross chapter uh, background building here. It's a hint here that, yeah, Ares was awful, but his awfulness was pointed almost exclusively at the nobility. He didn't torture small folk. He didn't burn small folk. He didn't he didn't really care about them. And since there wasn't much war during his era, they mostly had peace and plenty. So they remember a lot of small folk remember being under Ares. It's a pretty good time which is an interesting way for George to present it. It's, it very much touches on what Jorah says to Danny about the high, they don't care. They don't care about you know, the, the commoners don't care. They all they care is that high Lords, you know, leave them alone when they play their game of Thrones. Varys and Jorah uh, both express things like this. And uh, well, this is also brought up in Danny's next chapter. We'll, we'll see that when we get to it. So he, George is reinforcing the idea uh, by putting this thing about Ares in two consecutive chapters with two different POVs. Uh, so that's really important. I think that's pretty huge. Uh, this is just builds the, the idea that Ares was not such a simple thing, even though he was the Mad King and, and his, his actions were brutal and horrible and the re- rebellion was as justified as rebellion could ever be. It's no more complicated than that. It is more complicated than that. Arguably... Ares's reign was better for the commoners than Roberts, even though you could say the way Ares ruled was bound to cause disruptions and maybe civil wars. You could argue that he set all these things in motion, but that doesn't mean the commoners will see it that way. They might you, be wrong, but their perception is that it's, it's simple. It's like, oh, you could say that's true for Robert. Yeah, you're right. So, uh, yeah, so back to the, um, <laughs> back to mentioning the, uh, the torture just for a second here. The show just, had to have all that, right? They just had to show, you know, the tickler doing his thing. And they just like they had to show Theon's torture, I suppose. But, you know, so instead of that, we we didn't get all for Joffrey. <laughs> this old guy was all for Joffrey. A lot of people in the chat were just bringing that up before you even mentioned this. They're like, all for Joff, all for Joff. <laughs> it's funny that this is a joke because it's pretty sad. All for Joffrey's a little too loud and he gets tortured. Yeah, I know. Just like He's just rest. trying to save himself. Yeah, and he might even be He might have been genuine. Authentic. Yeah, I mean, not like everyone knows that he's just a little asshole. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's so sad. Or a big one, I guess. Well, you know, this last... Okay, so we're done with uh, Aria 6 here. It's the shortest chapter of this batch. Uh, there's a lot more Aria chapters coming. But there's no need for us to over-describe all the brutality. Even there, There's plenty of other things we had to say about that chapter. But that's those little bits, like the books... We'll leave that to be implied rather than show that that's the thrust in her face. So let's go to Daenerys 2. The gang finally learns Robert is dead, a.k.a. the one where they explore Karth. We took note of some world-building detail in Vase Taloro, and the Kothai people seem to be big on using snakes in their artwork and design. We saw cups with snake handles, and here we see similar imagery right here in the first line of the chapter. Quote, On the walls of Karth, Men beat gongs to herald her coming, while others blew curious horns that encircled their bodies like great bronze snakes. The three wise men she meet become part of the, what I've termed the Karth Ark. And that is not, that's Karth Ark, you know, the Ark of the Karthine character. And I, not, you know, how Vargo Hote would pronounce the word Karthark. 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 Karthark, yeah. 
And Vargo Ho does care about the car stark, but never actually says that name. So I, I do think he's probably how he would say it. <laughs> anyway, that's beside the point. And each of the, in turn, each of these three wise men, yes, one of them is actually a woman, become part of. Or the, is she? Or, yeah, or is she? Know. She's wearing a mask. Do we know for sure? <laughs> each of these become a part of the greater Danny plot arc, and all of them are still going. Uh, some people aren't huge fans of these Karth chapters, but I am. I'm a huge fan of them. And the fact that there are all these plot devices that get started here are still in play books later shows how important they are. So Zaro is still alive. Quaith is still alive and is probably sending more visions. And, and Pyat Pri, well, the Warlocks want revenge on Danny, and Euron has co-opted that revenge, or it's not revenge in his mind, but he's co-opted their plans and their their stuff. Very lucky for Euron, extremely unlucky for them. But still, that plot line is in motion in a different way. And three of those warlocks are still alive, though they might wish they weren't, uh, given their location in the hold of the silence being tortured. So Danny has only five chapters in Clash, and four of them are here in Karth, which is as far away from the Westeros as anyone in the story we've ever seen or going to see. Uh, although there are seeds planted here that continue to grow and continue to remain mysterious and significant. Uh, even though we hear about farther away places, like I said, this is as far as we're ever going to be present for a POV. <clears throat> Just as important as the welcome, or is the welcome she receives here. It's so much fanfare. They're blowing horns, beating gongs. This is an underappreciated part of Danny's arc. It's not just the overwhelming amount of evidence presented to her that she's actually special, but just how often she's reminded of that. It comes up in many different ways, too. Okay, performing miracles, you know, and coming to the one of the fanciest cities on the planet and being treated like a rock star uh, because of that miracle. So, and she's really young. So, given her age, she's like forming this worldview as she goes with questionable mentors and and a very atypical upbringing not to mention all the supernatural stuff happening all around her with her dreams and birthing dragons so this outlook of hers is is formed by seeing herself as having this very strong sense of destiny i don't blame her i mean the comet she thinks leads her to karth and so many of these things just seem to be lining up for her it's fascinating to see how this becomes part of who she is quote the bleeding star led me to Karth for a purpose. Here I will find what I need if I have the strength to take what is offered and the wisdom to avoid the traps and snares. If the gods mean for me to conquer, they will provide. They will send me a sign. And if not, if not. If you look back, your loss is, is, are those the words you're looking for there, Danny? Yeah, something like that, probably. And there's really nothing like a very young person getting treated like royalty and a rock star and a religious icon all at once. It's just, how can that not go to your head? <laughs> Karth is already a city of wonders. It's, they call themselves the greatest city that ever was or ever will be. So to be welcomed with that fanfare in a city like this is a really big deal. I mean, these are people that are probably kind of hard to impress. <laughs> you know, this is a, a city full of wonders. So they've got to have a high bar for what qualifies as a wonder. I mean, this city, just on the outside, you can already tell how fancy it is before we even go inside it. You see, this is a huge place surrounded by three walls. Each wall is higher than the last, and each wall is entirely, entirely covered in carvings. That is the amount of effort that had to go into carving all these city-encircling triple walls is just, wow. And it's even fancier than that, quote. 
That's okay. <laughs> mouse mouse malfunction. The name of my new band. <laughs> uh, God, this is terrible. It's one of those things where it opened like a program. Okay. The outer gates were banded with copper, the middle with iron. The innermost were studded with golden eyes. All opened at Danny's approach. As she rode her silver into the city, small children rushed out to scatter flowers in her path. They wore golden sandals and bright paint. No more. So not only is it a this fancy place, the greeting itself is elaborate and rich and, and just, you know, worthy of the fanciness of this city. So, yeah, I mean, she did do something really wondrous. Birthing dragons is, is probably clear as that, those high standards. Birthing dragons merits naked children in the streets. <laughs> naked yeah. painted children in the does. streets. Yeah, right? yeah. And, you know, as it often is with these super rich folk who are trying to impress someone, they, they kind of try to compete with each other in generosity. Zaro says she can have anything she desires. Pied Pri is like, Karth is already yours. Zaro says the 13 will place a crown of black jade and fire opals on her head, which would make for a fantastic Targaryen crown, really. He's, he's thinking smartly there, Zaro. <laughs> Let's think about these Karthian factions, though, and, and these individuals. We need to try to cover every aspect of Karth right here in this one chapter because, like I said, Danny's going to spend the rest of the book here, so we'll have more opportunities, more explanations, and we'll uh, roll with it as it comes. She's going to eventually leave on the three ships sent by Illyrio, uh, and, uh, of course, she's going to try to get a lot more ships than those three, but she doesn't. And, of course, she's also trying to get other things than ships and largely doesn't. And this will come in the same chapter where she rejects marriage to Zarozo and Daxos, meaning getting uh, three ships. So let's speak of him first off. He is one of the 13, a group of merchant princes. Now let's be clear on what a merchant prince is. Uh, they're absurdly wealthy from trade, right? Not from war. They have huge operations, perhaps inherited, right? He may have gotten a lot of these businesses from his dad and maybe his dad's dad. And who knows how long... His family has held this. Maybe not. Maybe he's the guy that built this up this large. Who knows? The point is he has existing businesses that generate huge amounts of cash. Danny just is, is astonished how wealthy he is. And they have, the fact is merchant princes, the, the implication, the reason it's called prince, they're not literally princes. They just have so much political power because of their wealth and influence that they are the equivalent to a prince in, uh, by measure of how much power they have. So the 13 are an extreme case because they're like 13 merchant princes grouping together to wield even more enormous political power. So they're, instead of one ultra-rich, influential lobbyist type, they're, well, 13 influential, rich lobbyist types. So they, they are part of the uh, de facto rulers of the city, apart from, say, the Pureborn and the Tourmaline Brotherhood and the Guild of Spicers, who were mentioned as the other big power players. The Pureborn are the ones who are actually descended from the kings and queens, and they're the nobility. But uh, it's shown here in Karth that, unlike Westeros, the wealthy merchant princes have as much power as the nobility, or at least close, whereas in Westeros, that is not necessarily the case. Very few merchants have this much power. So he's um, maybe a bit of a parallel to Illyrio himself. She goes from one wealthy benefactor to another. <laughs> Though she doesn't know it yet, wherever she goes in this world, people will be playing the Game of Thrones. When she goes to Slaver's Bay, we see it. And here in Carth, we see it. In some of these places, it's a very, very old game that people have been playing for centuries or eons where there's this progression where each generation of leaders is likely to be more corrupt than the last. 
because the, the game gets dirtier the longer it's played. The tricks become known. And so the tricks have to get dirtier because you need to find things that people don't see coming. You get more, there's more cynicism. It's just, well, many of these have grown savagely cynical here in Karth. I mean, you have ritualized bribery, basically. I mean, it's part of the, it's just so accepted that it's part of the culture. And that's just not a great sign. How can you, and how can you change a place that's been like this for thousands of years? That's one of the problems that Danny faces when going to these other places in the East is that they've been set in their ways for so long. It's going to be true in Westeros too, maybe to a lesser extent, but to a more meaningful extent, because these power structures will be arrayed against her and they probably won't accept her. And, but Danny is going to have the ability to topple these ancient power structures. She's going to have unprecedented ability to bring them down. She has methods and means at her disposal. Maybe not yet. Well, definitely not yet, but eventually. For example, when her dragons are larger and her army is large and diverse, well, just look at what she does in Slaver's Bay. She could have done similar things in Karth if she had her army at that time. So... What she isn't able to do in Karth, she does do in Slaver's Bay, and maybe she's going to do in Volantis or Pentos or both, or maybe even some other places. By then, she's not just going to have adult dragons. She's going to have Unsullied. She might have a bunch of Relorists following her. Uh, so, and Karth is still going to be involved, though, even though no one's likely ever going back here after a Clash of Kings. The, their political influence is still going to be big. If they knew that she would eventually disrupt the slave trade, it, it, that they'd eventually offer her 13 ships to just leave Essos outright, that they'd eventually declare war on her, they'd have killed her here instead. They'd have been like, well, let's take care of this problem before it gets larger. As she puts it herself, she's only got about four warriors to her name right now and her dragons are little babies. It'd have been the easiest thing in the world for her to take them, for them to take her out. But, this is just another thing Danny runs into. She flies under the radar, despite everyone knowing who she is. It's about this, this huge welcome. They still just treat her as a, as a wonder and not as a threat. She's a, she's, it's like a, you know, they just look down on her because of her gender and her age and her status. They, these pureborn think very little of her. The, the, someone that's like Zaro sees the angle here he's, he's, he's thinking ahead he's thinking oh yeah dragon hmm yeah i could uh, i could do something with that but the rest of the people just don't think about it that way so she has prospects here karth is definitely like she thinks she's right there's opportunity here it's not the uh, the opportunities don't add up the way she wants uh, but they are there but there's also these pitfalls so we have some parallels uh, as well as these pitfalls let's start with the parallels zaro talks about the warlocks in a way that Reminds us of what's just been said a couple Tyrion chapters ago about the pyromancers. Quote. Once they were mighty, Sorrow agreed. But now they were they are as ludicrous as those feeble old soldiers who boast of their prowess long after strength and skill have left them. They read their crumbling scrolls, drink shade of the evening until their lips turn blue, and hint of dread powers. But they are hollow husks compared to those who went before. Piet Pri's gifts will turn to dust in your hands, I warn you. You know, I just, this isn't in my notes, but I just thought of a perfect example of a feeble old warrior who boasts of his prowess long after strength and skill have left him. That guy, Eric, 
iron, the anvil breaker at the King's Moot, the dude who can't even stand up. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but he still talks about how, you know, badass he was, you know, <laughs> perfect example. But, it, but more on point, just like it is with the pyromancers, the old powers are rising. So their power is increasing, the warlocks, uh, with it. But Zara is still pretty much right here that their gifts will turn to dust because that's pretty much how the house of the undying ends up at the end of this Carthine arc. Uh, it, it dies and pretty much turns to dust, but it's also, but he means it as a metaphor since it's pretty close, uh, as you know, don't trust them. That's basically what he means. So, but he says it in a way that uh, becomes prophetic <clears throat> and several books later, nothing he, he's right. If you look back on the House of the Undying, what did Danny get out of it? We, the readers, got a lot out of it. There's all these visions that taught us a lot about what's coming. They gave us a lot to talk about. But in terms of benefiting her, have they? I don't, I don't know that they have. Like, what, is, what decisions has she made based on those visions? Well, it's a matter of whether they will affect her. At yeah, forward. that's true. That's true. It, it Maybe that it's just not yet. They haven't come yet, some of them. But... You know, she sees things like the the Westeros being torn apart. You know, like, well, yeah, we knew that already. <laughs> she knows that already. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so it, it's interesting. But we'll, we'll talk more so about wait, the House of Dying when we actually so wait, get there. Are you saying George is Captain Obvious there? <laughs> maybe, maybe. So it, it's a good point. Um, even though we can't trust Zaro, it doesn't mean he's not right about a lot of these things. On the other hand, there's Quake. Danny immediately doesn't trust her in part because of Miri Mazdor and she's wary of, of magic and stuff. But on the other hand, Quaith doesn't want anything, at least seemingly, and that's very telling. She only gives warnings. Quote, They shall come day and night to see the wonder that has been born again into the world. And when they see, they shall lust. For dragons are fire made flesh, and fire is power. And she's right. That's, you know, like Zaro, like even though she doesn't trust Zaro, some of his warnings are accurate. She doesn't trust Quaith, and her warnings are accurate. So far, all of her warnings have been pretty accurate or haven't come to pass yet. Zaro and the Warlock's ambitions were no doubt kindled from the moment they heard of Dragon's existence. What Quaith is saying is something that they heard of Dragon's and they're immediately like, ooh, yeah, fire is power, dragons are power. And they immediately were tempted by that. And, and they, their ambition probably only grew once they saw Danny and her meager Kalsar, we're like, oh, opportunity, opportunity. But Quaith doesn't seem to see it that way. She doesn't do anything that seems to resemble ambition for dragons or power. Not from a personal perspective, anyway. If she is after something, it's more of a Varus-style thing where it's not for personal gain. Uh, but that's really where the Varus-Quaith comparisons kind of end, because Quaith is a, a highly magical figure, and Varus is you know, opposed to magic. They're very mysterious. They are. That's true. They do have that. And they both, you know, disguise themselves. And they're both a big part of Danny's arc. And well. I have a picture of both of them from Ball at the Wall this weekend and Instax of them. Varys <laughs> and Quaith hanging out. Nice. So, you know. So, I gotta admit, Quaith is one of the most baffling characters in the series. Perhaps George had still intended for Danny to go to Ashai at this point in the story and Quaith was to be part of that. But as the story arc changed, as George changed some of his plans, scrapping the five-year gap, part of it maybe, so did the purpose of Quaith as a supporting character. She's from Ashai, and masks are normal there. She sees masked Ashai elsewhere, well, at Days Dothrak, for example. It's not limited to wielders of magic, meaning the masks, that is. The regular old Ashai wear masks. It's just their fashion. 
at this point, it's always story- a masquerade and a shy. <laughs> it's their slogan. Yeah, that's right. At this point in the story, glamours were not well understood or even mentioned by name. Uh, of course, by later in the series, they're thoroughly understood. Maybe not the mechanism, but the fact they exist. We haven't even seen Jockin change his face yet, so we're not there yet. But when glamours were introduced, a bajillion identity-based theories started appearing. But Quaith identity theories have been around much longer since this book. They've been around since 1998, thanks to her mask. It's the same kind of basic device where you don't know for sure who this person is, just like a glamour can make you unsure. A mask is a more basic way to express that. So what's interesting here is that the new Quaith identity theories are still coming up. Older theories range from Danny's mother, Rayella. Yes, she died giving birth to her. So that one isn't super well supported to Shiera Seastar, which is, I'm not a big fan of that theory. I mean, I like it, but I, I think the evidence is, yeah, it's okay. It's, it's not like out of bounds, but yeah, I'm not, a, I'm not a big believer in that one. But the new, there's a new theory that's come out since Fire and Blood, which is that she's Alyssa Farman or her descendant. Also, I'm not huge on that one, but I definitely recognize it's possible. What and, I and like I about more. that one, I, I mean, I don't think it's the case, but what I do like about it is that it would speak to George's gardener style. Yes. Which is that he could come up with this and then he'd be like, I'm going to write a backstory for this character. Yeah, you're right. Like, this, this is like Blood Raven was just imagined as he knew George knew he would be a Targaryen bastard and knew certain things about him. But like so much of the detail in the backstory was written afterwards. Yeah. And that could be the same here. And that is really that brings me to the next point, which is Melisandre is super important here because some of Quaith's role may be crossed up with Melisandre as George changed his plans because they there's so many aspects to their characters that are similar and seem to serve a related role in terms of narrative and, and Danny's arc. So Danny's not going to Ashai, we know that, but uh, Melisandre is our best probably our best uh, portal to learning things about it and its history. And that's obviously important because we're not going to go there. Uh, for example, it would have been interesting if the dragon horn came from Ashai instead of from Karth, for example. But did I just say, for example, for example, I did. I, I, I was, I'm, I need to be reported to the department of redundancy department. So there's nothing wrong with the warlocks having the horn or acquiring it. However, however they got it. I don't know how they got it, but however they got it, there's nothing wrong with it. But it you might really have fit better to, be to come reported. from Ashai. You said it, however, like three times right there. Yeah, I'm just you stuck. Need, I'm, yeah, I need, need more reporting to yeah. the Department of Redundancy, Department, Department of Redundancy. <laughs> uh, so likewise, some of Quaith's role may have been given to Melisandre, as her one POV chapter reveals that she was sold into slavery as a child and spent a large amount of time, if not most of her life, in Ashai before heading west. So if we're on to something here, if there is a Quaith-Melisandre overlap in terms of George's original plans that he kind of split later then it might also follow that Quaith, like Melisandre, has legitimately genuine motivation to fight against the oncoming darkness. That would certainly explain her otherwise lack of apparent personal ambition or motivation. Quaith is a shadowbinder like Mel, but there's no indication she's for R'hllor. But there's also no reason to assume that R'hllor worshippers have a monopoly in Essos when it comes to divining prophecies about the Long Night or Lightbringer or any of these related ideas. In other words... Uh, just because Quaith doesn't worship her lore, doesn't seem to, doesn't mean she can't be aware of what's coming, of the coming long night. In fact, it seems that she's, she is aware of it, at least at some level. <clears throat> so we know that there's many versions of the story told by Salador San to Davos regarding Azor Ahai. 
you know, as, as the world has expanded around us through future books, especially things like the world of ice and fire coming big here, there are similar stories where the hero has a different name, depending on which culture you're talking about. The Zorahai has a bunch of different names that seem to be all referring to the, maybe the same person, but maybe not. That's a different topic that we'll, we've gotten into in other places. The point is here that Quaith could have seen the future using different means than Mel, but reached a similar conclusion and has acting on her information just as Melisandre is in order to, hey, to save the world. She's guiding uh, a person. She's guiding Azora High as she sees it. Because Quaith could think that Danny is Azora High. Maybe she uses a different name. Maybe she thinks of Danny as uh, Eldrick Shadow Chaser or one of the other, or Yintar or something like that. Probably not. But the point is, Quaith is is where Mel should be. Mel should be supporting Daenerys, not Stannis. She's She's either intentionally promoting the wrong candidate until the real one uh, emerges or just act at this point actually thinks she's uh, thinks she's supporting the right candidate but is wrong. Either way, <clears throat> you can see these parallels. But <clears throat> this also ties into what we're talking about in the Theon chapter uh, relating to the origins of the oily black stone, which appears uh, in other places like Sothorios and Ashai. Um, which is, of course, very important. So uh, you go from all the way from the Ashai, from Ashai to the Iron Islands, like basically the two extreme ends of the known world and the extreme south with Sothorios. All of these super um, remote and extreme areas. And uh, this also relates to Danny's ancestor dreams, the ones that go back before the Targaryens to an era far more ancient and unknown. Do you think they were also ancestors? <laughs> Quite possibly. That's how they kept all the, the hair color and gemstone eyes for so long. <laughs> and she dreams of gemstone eyes and pale sor- swords of pale fire and, and hair colors that are similar to hers, but not exactly the same and with more variety than we see amongst the Valyrians typically from what we've seen, anyway. which is part of why, only part of why we think that they are not Valyrians or even Targaryens, but something far more ancient. With Mel and Quaith, given their association with Ashai and this connection to this, these ancient parts of Danny's story, plus this amazing world building in George R. R. Martin, uh, in history George R. R. Martin has imagined long ago, he's fleshed these things out, expanded on them, and it only makes us want to know more. It's funny, like the more he adds, the more we want to know. <laughs> it's like, no, you're not quenching our thirst, you're making us more thirsty. Now, two of our most popular episodes in our seven-plus years of podcasting are on Ashai and the Great Empire of the Dawn. So check them out if you haven't, or check them out again if you have, because maybe now you have some new thoughts on them, or maybe we've uh, maybe alerted you to more reasons why this is important. I bet a lot of y'all were surprised to find Oily Blackstone mentioned this early in the novels, and to see how many of these other little details through Quaith and Melisandre and other stuff about Ashai is all here. So yeah, George hadn't fully expanded on him, but those seeds were planted really early, 1998-ish. So Mel is, like I said, a strong candidate to reveal more about Ashai. Quaith could too. She's in Danny's head still giving visions or maybe using glass candles. We're not entirely clear on how, how these visions are being ported over, but more on that later. We also have Marwyn, who is, last we saw in the Feast for Crows, was heading toward Danny, but we haven't seen him arrive yet. Point being, though, if he does show up to Danny and Quaith has indicated uh, that, then maybe there's more ability for us to hear about Ashai because Marwyn's been there too. Another one who might have things to say about uh, Ashai is Euron himself. Maybe. 
A few other minor candidates like the sailors on the cinnamon wind could drop a line or two about Ashai as well. And that brings us full circle back to the meat of this chapter rather than this vast subtext and world building that's been expanded on later. The cinnamon wind. It's a wonderful little dot to connect. Sam and Gilly and Eamon take a ride on this very ship to Old Town in A Feast for Crows, which, of course, also has a connection to the Great Empire and the only Black Stone. But hey, I'm trying to come back full circle here. Stop it, Great Empire. Stop interrupting me with your awesomeness. We're talking about Daenerys II, A Clash of Kings, related but not directly involved. <laughs> the captain's daughter is named Koja Mo, a captain of the Cinnamon Wind, that is. And we named one of our cats after her, Koja Mew. She's the one that gets through to Sam about loving Gilly, him, you know, properly loving Gilly. But she doesn't appear until Feast. For now, we just get her father, Kahurumo, who brings the news to Danny that Robert is dead. And then they have a conversation that includes this particular exchange, quote. When does your ship return to Westeros, Captain? Not for a year or more, I fear. From here, the cinnamon wind sails east to make the traitors circle around the Jade Sea. So circling around the JT is why we think there's a decent chance he's been to Ashai, right? This, that's, that's part of the, well, what seems to be part of the circle. We don't have a full description of what that actually means, but if you draw a circle around the JT, it would include Ashai probably. So we do, of course, uh, and then of course later we see the cinnamon wind in Bravos. Like I said, that's when Sam and uh, Gilly and Eamon get on. So the news of Robert's death is not fresh, but it is important. It kind of inspires Danny to, you know, she's already pretty confident and, and you know, got, uh, pushing forward with her, her great goals here. But it, it's still a nice little uh, boost to her, her morale to hear that, that Robert is dead. And subconsciously, she probably also realizes that this maybe makes the throne a little more ripe for the taking because, hey, it's Joffrey, a young kid on the throne instead of, uh, you know, experienced warrior. And Danny doesn't realize how, you know, weak Robert became and how bad a ruler he is. He, he seems like to her, he's this kind of imposing warrior type that uh, slew her brother and overthrew her father. He doesn't realize uh, that he became a kind of a drunken wastrel later. And there's also this interesting quote from uh, Jorah. Ned Stark, a traitor? Ser Jorah snorted. Not bloody likely. Those long summer will come again before that one would besmirch his precious honor. That seems like very deliberate language, or if it's not, it's certainly a coincidence. <laughs> it's ironic because Ned did falsely admit treason to save his daughter, and of course he lied about John being his, which was a stain on his honor, as perceived by the world around him. We know that it was a noble, honorable, necessary thing to protect John. Uh, arguments about whether he should have told Catelyn aside it's seen, you know, we, it, it's it, the, the truth is a different story than the way it's perceived. Point being, he did besmirch his precious honor. So Jorah's, uh, you know, uh, projecting a bit because of, you know, his own thoughts on Ned. But perhaps more importantly, the notion, this, this casual quote of the long summer will come again before that one, blah, 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 blah. The long summer is deeply tied to Danny's arc as the savior of humankind. I've pointed out Benero before many times before and here's another time where we need to point to him he's the high priest of relor and volantis and he names denny azora high and claims those following her will see her bring on the long summer uh and it says it's just like this he says quote and her triumph over darkness will bring a summer that will never end it's that exact summer that will never end that she kind of refers to on the tv show in a way that really freaks out john and leads to well you know 
the the full uh, resolution. I'm doing finger quotes of Azor Ahai, uh, the show's version. <laughs> but still, some version of that is not unlikely in the books. Uh, though the details and the path we take to get there will probably be very very different. Uh, the point about her ushering or threatening to usher in the opposite of a winter that will never end and a summer that will never end that both involves people not dying. Uh, yeah, that doesn't sound great either. Maybe only a little better than a winter that will never end. It's pretty bad. Gohoro Mo uh, knows that she is called Stormborn, that she has that nickname, and that makes us wonder, where did she get that nickname? We know, I mean, we know why she has a nickname, because there was a storm the day she was born, but who actually dubbed her that? Yeah, and it seems like a good decision. Like, if you wanted her to be a ruler or to be, you know, a, a, some sort of figure in bringing these Targaryens back that you would brand her Stormborn, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, like, but whether someone did that because of that, uh, yeah, I, my best guess is Derry. Yeah, William Derry does sound like a good guess because, like you said, when we were talking about this offline, it probably wasn't Viserys. Yeah. There just really aren't that many other candidates. Yeah, I mean, only other people I thought of were Varys and Illyrio, and they don't have that much motivation to do that to, to yeah. brand her in That's such a true. way market her yeah because their original plan was was fagan although maybe they did to maybe make to make her bigger distraction but yeah I, I I, that know. seems a bit of a stretch and even so viserys was ahead of her but I, I i think it adds some clout some some whatever to their cause like daenerys stormborn i don't yeah. know yeah good point uh she thinks of how she wants good things for her people. She had briefly considered restoring Vase Toloro at one point, but as we're told later, dragons don't plant trees. And we're told much earlier that neither do Dothraki. The World of Ice and Fire clarifies that it's a religious thing for them to not plant and till the earth. They think it's just anathema. They think it's, yeah, you know, they don't do that. And here's a related line that looms hugely, not just for the Dothraki, but for Danny's future. Quote, the Dothraki sacked cities and plundered kingdoms. They did not rule them. Danny had no wish to reduce King's Landing to a blackened ruin full of unquiet ghosts. She had supped enough on tears. I want to make my kingdom beautiful, to fill it with fat men and pretty maids and laughing children. I want my people to smile when they see me ride, the way Viserys said they smiled for my father. But before she could do that, she must conquer. So there, real quick, before we get into the meat of that quote, is what we referred to in the last chapter with Arya and the guy, the old man who's, who wishes that Ares was still in charge. Uh, here's another person. This is Viserys probably telling the truth for once <laughs> about how they did appreciate Ares because, well, even though he doesn't necessarily deserve credit for it, on the surface, it appeared that his realm was peaceful from, uh, from a commoner's point of view. But still, the big part of here is, wow, right? The, she does not want to reduce King's Landing to a blackened ruin full of unquiet ghosts? Hello! <laughs> that's, that's foreshadowing. But how do we get from her wanting to make her kingdom beautiful to the intentional destruction of a city? Notice I use the word intentional because we've been very much entertaining the notion along the way from the very beginning of our reread that yeah, there's a lot of clues that King's Landing will be destroyed in a manner somewhat similar to the show, but there's a lot of other clues that it won't be her intent like it was in the show. In this case, we have 
a lot of reason to believe that there'll be an accident, wildfire related perhaps, but that she'll be blamed for it, regardless of her intent. So that's a huge little factor here. A huge little factor. <laughs> All- that's like when we were in Ireland hearing, you know, that's a wee big box. Yeah. <laughs> Jumbo shrimp. <laughs> and wrapped up in all this is uh danny's lack of experience she says she must conquer and wanting peace and prosperity is very much at odds with conquest she hasn't seen conquest yet she's seen the fracky pillaging and she maybe tells herself that that oh that's different than conquest conquest is going to be a lot nicer it's going to be a lot uh, smoother and, and less brutal but that's just not true i mean it's not it's not as bad as the thraki way but it's not a lot better it's still really brutal and, and causes the death of many many innocents so it's true that king's landing can be taken without burning into the ground but that doesn't mean it will yeah there's middle grounds between those extremes but danny doesn't have that nuance she doesn't know because well she's 13 when she says i'm a young girl who doesn't know the ways of war it's a tactic to continue to make her enemies believe that she's worth underestimating she's playing on their patriarchal beliefs wait when did you say she was 13 did i is she not 13 she's 15 oh she's 15 already says she's like i've only counted 15 name days oh really okay yeah i thought she was 13 at the beginning of the story she's aged two years already i know it's weird but i took note specifically that she says in this chapter that she's reached 15 named i remember it's that line where she's talking about how She's older than the crones, the Dosh Killeen, yeah. <laughs> and younger and as young as her dragons. And you're like, okay, Daenerys. You know. uh, well, regardless, 1350, not a big difference. No, the, the yeah, point is, she's, she's, she says, I'm a young girl to, to kind of content, to fool these guys into staying uh, patriarchal about her. Like they, they're like, yeah, playing into their, their already, uh, their, their beliefs about her. But, it's also true in a sense that she's naive in terms of the long-term effects of war. Maybe she's, she's got some clever strategies. She understands more than she lets on, but she doesn't have any experience ruling and she doesn't have much experience seeing the long-term effects of, of her policies or anyone's policies. She doesn't even really know how her father ruled. She only has like tidbits and like, oh, the, the commoners liked my father, but that's, that's, that doesn't tell you very much. It doesn't tell you like how he ruled. It doesn't tell you like, it's not like Aragorn's tax policy, right? <laughs> that old concept. How does she, how did he do these things? So just as the pyromancers and warlocks have some things in common, we have reason to think of that comparison as the warlocks will show her the future at the House of the Undying, while Tyrion show us how she might accidentally cause this damage, m- meaning the wildfire caches. Uh, so just as their power may be now on the rise, and the pyromancers will be as well, as in very soon Helene is going to ask Tyrion, if, are there new dragons in the world? And Quaith is going to echo this by telling Danny that her dragon's rebirth is causing other weak mages, not just the the pyromancers and the warlocks, but just like street magic are just going to start showing more power. Street magic. Street magic. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a, there's a little interesting tidbit here when Danny is uh, first getting settled in at uh, Zarazo and Daxos's manse. Even when she's relaxing, she's still just thinking ahead and planning and and plotting her future. Here's the quote. The water was deliciously cool, and the pool was stocked with tiny golden fish that nibbled curiously at her skin and made her giggle. It felt good to close her eyes and float, knowing she could rest as long as she liked. She wondered whether Aegon's Red Keep had a pool like this and fragrant gardens full of lavender and mint. It must, surely. 
Viserys had always said the Seven Kingdoms were more beautiful than any other place in the world. So that's not true. No, Karth is spectacular. Karth is yeah. There's not Westeros has nothing on Karth now. Maybe like the the ethics of the people. You take away the people, you're not so sure because Karth seems like a very corrupt society. But so is Westeros. I mean, yeah, you've seen we've seen some people in Karth. I'm sure there's so many great people. Karth is is arguably worse in some ways because it has slavery and stuff like that. But it also has you know more culture, more you know cosmopolitan. There's more. There's a lot more diversity. So there's, yeah, but definitely there is nothing that looks like Karth and Kingsley. Nothing even no. remotely that close to the walls and the buildings. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing is old, hardly. I mean, there are things as old, but the things that are as old in Westeros are not fancy. Hightower maybe is an exception. The Hightower isn't really fancy. It's just impressive. Yeah, it's impressive. Eerie is, is, is fancy, but it's not old. I mean, not, not compared to, it's not Karth old. And uh, I just imagine there are lots of, type uh eeries type buildings in karth you know mm-hmm. and much much older uh so but but also i like i said before Ashea i read the quote notice how she's just thinking of the of how nice it is but immediately she thinks of the red keep you know just like i wonder like oh this is a really nice pool i wonder if the red keep has a pool like this you know but no it doesn't have a pool like that it doesn't have gardens full of lavender and mint no surely is what danny thinks but no surely not so this is important because it shows her that, you know, Danny's ideas of Westeros are very wrong. They're very, uh, they're, I mean, they're from, they're a product of what Viserys has told her. And Viserys is, well, he's a crazy person. <laughs> and uh, not an honest person either. So uh, and Jorah has a wonderfully interesting quote here that uh, fits super well with the theme of this chapter. Sweet smells are sometimes used to cover foul ones. Yeah. It fits with other things, too. We were talking about, in fact, we were talking about Tywin. Yeah, it is a very true for Tywin, yes. And I also thought a bit of Varys because, obviously, he, you know, makes himself very fragrant with these sweet smells, but he has uh, some foulness to him. Yeah. And his, his little birds and his, his personality. Plans, yeah. yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, especially, the, uh, you're right. There's nothing worse than his little birds in terms of pointing to the foulness of Varys. That's... That's the uh, that's the, the the peak of his awfulness of his stench. <laughs> but yes, we also see it here in Karth, of course. Yeah, and it's funny that Jorah brings that up. Uh, and here's we'll get to that in a minute. Here, Karth is a complete opposite uh, from from what Danny has experienced so far. It's going from nomadic life, sleeping on the floor, sleeping in her saddle, to just Zaro's manse and this decadence of Karth and all this other stuff. Uh, she goes from a desert to. To, to coming into this. I mean, it's just a massive difference. It's really hard to find a bigger contrast than this. I mean, uh, compare it to like Harrenhal or something, which, which we just saw. It's so vastly different. And, and Harrenhal is an interesting example because the, the level of effort to build Harrenhal, the, the resources and the fact that it was basically slavery that built Harrenhal, just like it's basically slavery that built Karth because it's the, the, the thralls and, and Harren's, uh, you know, taking of captives to make his castle. So uh, that's similar, but Harry, but he didn't care about making it look nice. He wanted it to look intimidating and big and huge. He didn't, it's not fancy looking like, like anything in Karth. So uh, this is like another example where Daenerys is, is learning new customs and new culture and, and, and kind of incorporating it all in her, in her outlook and, and her path, like uh, bringing different, 
cultures together. It's part of the Azor Ahai mythos of, of uniting different cultures to face the darkness. And uh, it's just the beginning, though, because at this point, she doesn't have a big army. Uh, it's just the start here. So back to Jorah's reluctance to go to the docks. It's really interesting. Uh, this is huge in light of what happens later. Let's jump ahead to a Storm of Swords, Danny Six, for a quote when Danny confronts Jorah about his eventual treachery. Quote, I made one report from Karth, but... From Karth? Danny had been hoping it had ended much earlier. What did you write from Karth? That you were my man now? That you wanted no more of their schemes? Ser Jorah could not meet her eyes. When Khal Drogo died, you asked me to go with you to Yi-T in the Jade Sea. Was that your wish or Robert's? That was to protect you, he insisted, to keep you away from them. I knew what snakes they were. So that's kind of funny, too, because I just, at the beginning, I pointed out how all this, this snake symbolism that's present in Karth. <laughs> so he brings her to a, a bigger, a city of, that's just as snaky, if not more so, even though Danny's more of an unknown commodity here in Karth. It's only a short matter of time before they know who she is and start coming for her. So it's it's it, it's not better for her, really. She's not more protected in Karth, really. Uh, but Jorah, so what's Jorah doing here? Was he avoiding the docks because he knew he'd be tempted to send this message, that he his last message? It's interesting to consider his own point of view here and whether he struggled with that. He just thought, no, don't send me to the docks because then I'm going to have to, then I got to, continue to you know play both sides but if you just keep me nearby i won't have a chance to do that and i won't have that temptation i don't know but that that's my best guess but look how varus actually reports the message you see varus's manipulation he definitely does not present it in a way that's meant to be taken seriously look at this the storm of sword Tyrion three quote sailors back from the jade sea report that a three-headed dragon has hatched in karth and is the wonder of that city. And the line ends there. It's interrupted. Varus is interrupted because Tywin jumps in to say, I'm not interested in dragons. He also doesn't let it krakens because Varus mentions it alongside reports of an actual kraken taking down a, an Ebenezer whaler, which is just a way of making it seem even less important and just a, a piece of news from afar. Now, if if, Ty, if, if Varus had delivered the real news that it's Daenerys Targaryen hatching three dragons, which he no doubt knows, then Tywin might have cared. But Varus is like, oh, this is all we, we heard, this rumor, <laughs> you know? So of course Tywin's going to dismiss that because it sounds like just nonsense. And sailors like Kahuru Mo, again, who we mentioned earlier in this chapter, he brings the news to Old Town uh, as well. Or maybe not just him directly, but lots of other sailors because sailors pass through Karth a lot. It's a huge trade destination. So they're all going to be hearing about this dragon queen or at least this mother of dragons. She maybe isn't called the dragon queen yet by a lot of people, but that, that term is coming soon enough. But aside from, I mean, that's, that's newsworthy. That's the kind of thing that people would love to gossip about. So that's why we get it at the beginning of the, of a face for crows in the prologue. They talk about dragons and they mention Karth repeatedly. So Karth remains important, even though uh, we probably won't see it directly again. Well, we will in the rest of Danny's arc of this book. I mean, after the book. All right, some more random thoughts and comments from y'all. Minge Forever uh, points out that the uh, the scene where Danny's floating 
uh, in Zaro's Mance, and then um, in the pool is uh, a, is sort of a reference to the Water Gardens, or at least a reminiscent of the Water Gardens, which is perhaps a big part of Danny's arc in our Roinar series, which we've done two out of the three episodes so far. But we've covered the part that relates to this, which is that there is some evidence, which I present in that episode, that uh, the Water Gardens are going to get torched. So it's not exactly a, a happy so she, But So she might see something uh, at least somewhat beautiful, like these pools. Yeah, that's true. They do. They, they're not and in then, the right key, but they do exist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they may not be beautiful when she's done with them. <laughs> uh, here's one other one that puzzles me. Just like the, uh, the Renly uh, dwarf, uh, joust, not jousting thing, dwarf uh, example of, at their feast where they used the Kinslayer, Kingslayer thing. There, this line uh, that she says at the, la- the last line of the chapter, she says, dragons die, but so do dragon slayers. I really don't know what to make, in that, make of that. So I would love to hear what y'all think, whether it, it's maybe a reference to John, because John is maybe, I don't know if John's a dragon slayer, unless you think of him as killing Danny. Yeah. So it's a metaphorical dragon slayer, that's, and John himself dies. Yeah, that's my that. thought, is that um, you can look at it as who, is, who will kill a dragon, yeah. an actual dragon, and... Who will or has killed, you know, a dragon? Mm. Like Robert, for example, obviously is a dragon slayer because he killed Rhaegar. Yes. And he just died. And so, like, there's that. But then, if you're looking to the future, um, thinking about that is interesting because obviously what we saw in the show about the dragons dying was not, it does not, it clearly is not what will happen in actuality. Yeah. That's a good point. So we, that's a, it's a kind of an oblique reference, but I, I think maybe we have, uh, I think that's probably accurate relating it to John, but we're open to other ideas. Hit us with your thoughts. If you have them, let's talk a little bit about appearances. Uh, again, we need to keep our show book canon straight. Here's what Zaro looks like. Zaro was a languid, elegant man with a bald head and a great beak of a nose crusted with rubies, opals, and flakes of jade. And he's tall and pale. <laughs> well, Zara was a summer islander who had migrated to Karth on the show. So, you know, I don't mind that change. They wanted to get a little more, uh, you know, diversity in there, which is yeah. cool. It's not a big deal. I got, that's a fine channel. And he man. had that kind of smoothness, too. Whereas yeah. I have to call out the audiobooks for this when we were listening to this in the car. And the voice that Roy Jotrice gives Zara is so guttural and, like, gruff. Yeah. When I, he's such a smooth kind of man. He's languid, elegant man. Yeah, I agree. I, it's, he, I think he chose the wrong voice for that. <laughs> uh, the, we took a few other quotes here, um, the world building here, uh, and it's going to relate us to uh, Pyat Pri, who, you know, Pyat Pri kind of looks like the TV version. It's not a big difference. You know, tall, pale, blue lips. That's basically what the TV show yeah. actor looked like. Um, yeah. Let's, let's take a quote here. Hyatt Pri conducted her little calisar down the center of a great arcade where the city's ancient heroes stood thrice life-size on columns of white and green marble. They passed through a bazaar in a cavernous building whose latticework ceiling was home to a thousand gaily-colored birds. Trees and flowers bloomed on the terraced walls above the stalls, while below it seemed as if everything the gods had put into the world was for sale. Yeah, she's thinking about how gigantic the market is, and this is another uh, expression of just how incredible Karth is, but also just how connected and uh, part of the uh, huge regional trade network uh, in the center of it, really, because they 
control the Jade Gates, which is the narrow enclosure between Karth and Great Morak. So it's basically access to the Jade Sea is kind of controlled in that little strait there. So uh, with a modest navy, Karth can tax things kind of like um, the Stepstones does uh, taxing, but it's a different style of taxation and there's no trade in the Stepstones. It's pretty much just piracy and, and, and uh, taxation through violence. But uh, the concept is somewhat similar in that they're controlling an important trade spot. Uh, here's another line that really makes us think, and it uh, comes up with some more stuff about Piatri. Karth is the greatest city that ever was or ever will be, Piatri had told her back amongst, amongst the bones of Vase Taloro. It is the center of the world, the gate between north and south, the bridge between east and west, ancient beyond memory of man, and so magnificent that Sathos the Wise put out his eyes after gazing upon Karth for the first time, because he knew that all he saw thereafter should look squalid and ugly by comparison. Now, I seriously doubt some dude yeah. cut his own eyes out because of how amazing Karth looked. He would probably like, no, I want to keep these eyes so I can keep looking at how yeah. amazing it is. <laughs> but I do think it's interesting to wonder about who this Sathos the Wise was. And we had two guesses. Yeah. One is obviously one Sarnor. They have a bunch of two uh, A uh, S two A names like yeah. Soth and all that. But obviously, in least we have Salador San. So more S A A type. But yes. with how ancient it was, I I, I have this. So I, I I would like to think that it's something with Sarnor. Yeah. Um, because of that. And the way he's like Sothos the Wise, it seems like such a kind of mythical story. It sounds like me. a really ancient figure, so I agree with that guess yeah. because, yeah, the Lycene are more of a, a much newer culture uh, than the Sarnori, so I, mm. I definitely go with your interpretation there. Um, here is another kind of um, interesting reference here about, we're going back to talk about the walls for a second. The innermost wall was 50 feet of black marble, with carvings that made Danny blush until she told herself that she was being a fool. She was no maid. If she could look upon the gray wall's scenes of slaughter, why should she avert her eyes from the sight of men and women giving pleasure to one another? And obviously that's a huge commentary on something George feels very strongly about, which is, why do we care? Like, why is American so puritanical when, uh, and so violent? It's yeah, ridiculous. why are we so sex is 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 all good. Violence is is more is bad on the yeah. spectrum of things. It's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, and uh we got a quote from or a, a comment rather from Archmaester Rennie on Flick who said this could be a nod to how traditional censoring TV of TV has worked in that violence has always been more acceptable than nudity, which yeah. is basically what kind of what you just said. Yeah, he's I mean he's brought I, it up many George times. George brought that up. Because yeah. people criticize him like, why is there so much sex? And he's like why do you care and why are you not complaining about the violence then? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a great point by George. And it, I agree that that's probably what he's making a point of here. Uh, so that's neat. Here's another just um, fascinating. Uh, we just pulled this quote just because it sounds. Yeah, awesome. I love the, the first. Uh, whoops. <laughs> we're, we're such world building nerds. So you knew you guys knew that we were going to yeah. spend a little extra time in cars. Yeah, I love this. This first line. I think it's so poetic. All the colors that had been missing from Vase Taloro had found their way to Karth. Buildings crowded about her fantastical as a fever dream in shades of rose, violet and umber. She passed under a bronze arch fashioned in the likeness of two snakes mating 
their scales delicate flakes of jade, obsidian, and lapis lazuli. Slim towers stood taller than any Danny had ever seen, and elaborate fountains filled every square, wrought in the shape of vile of griffins and dragons and manticores. Interesting, the griffins and dragons and manticores sounds very similar to the way a dragon stone is decorated, but of course, it's a different type of stone most likely used. And Slim Tower's taller than she's ever seen. Well, when she sees the high tower, assuming she does, she'll see one that's even taller. <laughs> but again, we see the, the snakes uh, mating here, the likeness of the bronze arch fashioned in the likeness of two snakes mating. So there's yet again uh, snake imagery in Karth, which certainly seems to be a pattern that George has given them, something from their ancient past, perhaps. Uh, but um, so, yeah, there's not a lot, of, a whole lot to say about that other than that. It's just a really awesome, like Ashea said, it's just beautifully written, and uh, we, we love it. Mother Tribbles had a great uh, quote, or another, I keep calling our, our user, our listener <laughs> comments quotes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is about 2.30 in the morning. Mother Tribbles says, what about this so-called ointment that lets one see spirits of the air? Yeah, that's, Zaro gives this to Danny, a so-called ointment that lets her see the spirits of the air. And so she wants to know if that comes up anywhere else. The ointment does not. But the spirits of the air themselves are mentioned. At least it's like a concept elsewhere than Karth. Uh, in A Dance with Dragons, Tyrion 5, when they're in the mist, entering the sorrows where, you know, Grayscale was perhaps born into the world, Isilla says, there are restless spirits in the air here and tormented souls below the water. And farther back, also in Tyrion, uh, but Game of Thrones Tyrion 1, of all places, we get a humorous reference here when Sandor is mocking Tyrion, pretending to not know where Tyrion's voice is coming from. He says, quote, a voice from nowhere, Sandor said. He peered through his helm, looking this way and that. Spirits of the air. Hey, I'm a spirit of the air. I'm a voice from nowhere, Aziz. <laughs> you are. Yeah, look Ashea around. is our spirit you of the air. You can't even see me, really. Where is her voice? Sure, I can't really see her. I have to look, I have to like look up and around. Yeah. There she is. <laughs> <laughs> but you're still an ethereal spirit of the air, even though you have a corporeal form. That's right. So with that little uh, little jokey joke, Spirit to the Air tidbit, we are ready for our outro. I want to mention Joe Magician has a stream on Halloween with Bookshelf Stud. That's uh, our good friend, Michael, who we've, we've podcasted with both of those guys. Good stuff. And we would like to tell you what's coming up next week. It's going to start off with Brand 4. The one where Jojen explains green jeans. Green, <laughs> green Let's try that again. I have a pair of green jeans. Yeah. Let me back up, not just to repeat that because I goofed it, but also to point out that Ashea pointed out to me that not every It's Always Sunny episode has to have the phrase, the gang, blankety blank. So I, I opened up it a little bit more. Yeah, I made a nice little list of some of the some of the titles I think might work out later. And I immediately made use of some of them with, while also expanding the concept a little further into, uh, well, you'll see. Brand 4, the one where Jojen explains green dreams, a.k.a. dances with direwolves. Tyrion 7, Lancel Lannister, an erotic life, a.k.a. the one where Tyrion steals Cersei's plaything. Arya 7, the gang gathers at Harrenhal, a.k.a. the one where Jockin is a killer genie. Catelyn 3, the one with Stannis and Renly's banter battle. A.K.A. F. Lightbringer versus a Peach. Sansa 3, 
King Rob, the sauce boss of Oxcross, a.k.a. the one where Tyrion rescues Sansa. Um, sorry, a couple people said the stream crashed, but I'm very confused about that. Um, other people aren't saying it. Sorry, I will just continue. We're at the very end. Um, Catelyn 4, the one where, what? A shadow? A.k.a. the gang switches Baratheons. Cat 3 is the third chapter next week, and that's the actual halfway point, which kind of adds weight to what I said about, uh, sorry, about the length of these early chapters. Uh, so we'll be at chapter 31 with Catelyn 3 and already halfway through the series book, even though uh, by number of chapters, 35 would be the halfway point. So a full four chapters earlier than the chapter count halfway point. So that tells you something about the way this book is distributed uh, in its chapters. So we will see you all next time, I hope. Ashea and I thank you for coming. Very big thanks to our live attendees who submitted questions and comments and jokes and just made the whole experience more communal. Uh, thanks also equal thanks to our patrons who, without your bottom line support, none of this would be possible. Thanks to Joe Buckley for adding his great thoughts to our episode very thorough and of course he covers the these chapters on his own trying to pick out things that we didn't necessarily touch on other thoughts other explanations on his show called the isle of faces his uh editions of valerie Redis are called scraps and scrolls also thanks to our wonderful history of westeros mods that continue to drive the discussions on facebook by posting the chapters individually and leading discussions that include artwork and reflecting our goofy <laughs> chapter alternate titles. <laughs> Thanks to all the rest of the Facebook contributors and Flick contributors, Tree Girl and Nina and Stefan B and all the rest of you who have been very thorough and very useful in helping us make sure we don't miss things. And if you didn't get named, we still appreciate you. And maybe we'll name you on a future episode. And thanks to our patient kitties sitting here meowing. <laughs> yes, they're just really waiting for us to interact with them. They don't understand what we're doing here. They're like, but... it's 2.30 and you're not cuddling. <laughs> also, thanks to anyone who shared, anyone who's reading along, anyone who spreads the word about History of Westeros. We, uh, we've been around a while, but you'd be surprised how much word of mouth still counts and how much, you know, reviewing us and rating us on iTunes matters. So we appreciate all your support in any form that it takes. And well, we will see you next time, everybody. Valar Reredis. <laughs> <laughs>